Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm back with Daniel from What is Politics? And how are you doing? Hey, good to see you. You look like Superman in your icon there. <laughs> yeah, that was a, a friend of mine took that picture, and I was like, oh, that's a really cool picture. He, like, retouched yeah. it to make it look cool. Yeah. <laughs> we were just talking before going online, and there's a question that's been, I've been asking people around me and wondering myself that I asked you, and we're going to get to that in a second. But first, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from our conversation, and yeah. I've I've sent a bunch of people to your podcast, videocast, podcast, and people love it. And now I'm going to flatter you. I don't care. I'm going to read a couple of comments on YouTube. The YouTube yeah. comments on your last video, and I could have picked any of your videos. And the last video was on uh, why the Russian Revolution failed. This is not a title that people are like, let's go to YouTube and look up Russian Revolution. Let's look up failure. And here's some comments. I've never before decided to give money to a creator after watching just one of their videos, but God damn it, comrade, I begin, I can't begin to describe how profoundly this video has touched me. Thanks and keep up the good work. I'm happy to give a little bit, encourage an absolutely, another one, an absolutely incredible video. I was very engaged from beginning to end. Another, this gave me so much depth to my current understanding and reaffirmed some thoughts too. I appreciate your immense hard work. Love this channel. And oh, now I'm going to read the one in French because I emailed it to you and you said, oh, you speak French. So my oh, French yeah, yeah, accent. C'est monumental le travail que que tu nous as livré ici. Honnêtement, je crois que c'est la meilleure vidéo que j'ai vue sur le sujet. I hope my accent hasn't fallen apart too much. No, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. It's and, just uh, the best video I've ever seen on this subject. So <laughs> that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. And again, this is not like an influencer video of like, here's an unboxing thing or like, yeah. like it's, <laughs> it's serious business. It's very educational. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's tons of information. And you're not trying to make it funny, but there's a lot of humor in it too. I, oh, yeah. I'm curious about how you do that. How do you balance that? I, I don't know. I've done comedy. You know, I have a comedy background. I don't know. It's just got to be funny to keep it entertaining for me. I always think everything that's miserable should be funny. You know, that's one of the reasons we have humor. You know, concentration camp humor. There's famous uh, stories about people in the concentration camps making jokes. So yeah, I don't know. It just makes it more interesting for me. But how do you know French? I was I'm always surprised when anybody knows French who isn't like from here or France or Haiti or something. Well, growing up, my dad spent some time in France, so he speaks French. But he he spent he speaks like five or six languages. This is how it happened. When I was in junior high, classes had started on the on the roster, which was handed to me. Mm. It said language class. I had to choose French or Spanish. In the mm. moment, like no one asked me, they were just like, it was time to go to class. And I had like seconds go. to choose. Oh no. Wow. And I thought, how do I choose? I have no idea. And I thought, well, I like the little prince. <laughs> Maybe I could read that in the original. So I went to French. <laughs> Excellent. Because everyone would pick Spanish as a more, in the US, it's the more obvious, uh, the useful language. So that's, that's awesome. And I then I, ended up, I spent a year in Paris in uh, 1990 to 1991. Oh, cool. And yeah, yeah I, yeah, I really loved that year. And then I'm going to say something else that uh, on your Patreon page. Oh, yeah. Since now I'm a member, so everyone can donate oh, yeah. as well. That people, I don't donate to many of the things that I, to many of the causes that, that I bring people on, not because I don't want to, but because there's only so much I can do. Yeah. And uh, but yours I did. And then I, start, I saw people commenting on our last conversation, which was really exciting to see. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm going to jump into what, um, what we talked about before. Because yes. you were asking me, you said a lot of uh, people on the left are asking, are saying, or uh, like they're saying nuclear is a solution. Yeah, and yeah. I keep hearing, and they're they're so confident about it. They're just derisive of anyone who criticizes nuclear, and they 
they're saying that I forget they're just using you know, anyone who's against uh, nuclear is a fake, uh, you know, and, and claims to care about the environment is just a hypocrite. And you're just doing lobbying for the oil companies by being anti-nuclear. Like that's the, the rhetoric I'm hearing on the left. Oh, and we could have, we could keep producing more. There's no reason we can, we have to stop producing what we're producing all, you know, from sources. I'm surprised that that's the kind of stuff I've been seeing and haven't done the deep dive into it yet. So I've been asking my friends like, like you who are deep into the environment, uh, what's, what's this all about? And does this have any merit or what's the, uh, yeah, what's, are there counter arguments? What are they? Well, the deep dive, I'll give you the, the, access, the resource that I find best, which is a blog called Do the Math mm -hmm. by Tom Murphy. He's been a guest on this podcast. He's a physicist. He's now emeritus professor. He went to Caltech, teaches at UCSD. He wrote this blog called Do the Math, where he does the math. Yeah. He answers the question that you're asking uh, for okay. all the different energy sources, for, you know, what, including things of like, why don't we put a laser a satellite in space is beam laser, you know, everything he, right, he right. goes through. <laughs> Dyson Spears. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure if he worked on that. Cause that's not really like stuff <laughs> no, that could that be done right now. Like could we power things with vegetable oil from yeah. used fryers? And right. Oh, so, that reminds me of the dude who used to drive around in a, a vegetable oil car in Montreal. I don't know where he went, but anyways, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. So the short answer is that we have a system that pollutes in many, many ways. Carbon dioxide is just one of them. So if you only mm -hmm. look at carbon dioxide, and you ignore everything else, then mm -hmm. nuclear does uh, emit less CO2 than everything else, than, yeah. than uh, fossil fuels. But what happens is that we have a full system and the system is having many effects on the environment. So you know about the deforestation and aquifers being depleted and um, habitat yeah, loss leading to extinctions. Yeah. You know, I could go on with many of these things. Poisoning well, the it would yeah. accelerate all of those things. So even if you hmm. dropped one thing, carbon dioxide, you'd increase everything else. Accelerate them how? If we had more energy cheaper, it's effectively more efficient I because see. it pollutes less. Yeah. yeah, there's incentive to keep building more and more stuff, to keep producing more and more stuff. And now if it's cheaper to do it, then we're just going to do more of it. And so in the end, it could have the opposite effect. Right. And let's take the next step to fusion. Fusion yeah. would be even advantageous because it uses its fuel is hydrogen that it fuses into helium. So there's no uranium, no like cold fusion. You mean like the that doesn't exist yet, like that that idea, or just nuclear regular? Cold fusion was a hoax, or at best a misunderstanding. So there's oh, no okay. such thing as cold fusion. That, but that's, never are... gonna, that's never going to happen. Okay, right. It never did happen. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's never happened. But I, the idea is that if it does happen, it'll be the cheapest, best source of. Uh energy or okay maybe i don't know what i'm talking about so there talking. are there's yeah. a big research there are several research things going on around the world to try mm -hmm. to create fusion if fusion were to work it's what mm -hmm. happens in, in the interior of the sun oh, versus star. fission right there's fission sorry yes okay so the nuclear power we have now is fission and what we what people are interested in is fusion yes That's what yes okay now if we did have fusion then mm -hmm. all right the way there's a two big effects one is that if we have a system that pollutes in every other way People imagine like the Star Trek clean spaceship, but that's not yeah. what would happen. It would accelerate everything. All the other just, right. yeah, not just the things that you want. That's why we have all this garbage everywhere. Is like we we're that's one one of many manifestations of all this pollution. So it's but, just the incentives inherent to capitalism, which incentivizes us just to produce, to produce, to produce, to sell, to sell, to sell. It are just that's the problem with the system. No matter what your energy source is. Yeah, I don't think it, I mean, it, it wouldn't require capitalism either. It, it would, although actually speaking of, here I can talk to you about this. Mm -hmm. If you gave the Hadza a fusion reactor, they wouldn't do anything yeah. with it. They'd be like, 
I don't need this. Well, yeah, I mean, they don't. And, and, and who knows? You never know because if you give people something, they you'll often find uses for them. So one of the we can get into this. One of the things about the Stone Age, or you know, ancient humans or current hunter gatherers who live in conditions that might be similar to our ancient conditions and the conditions that we're evolved in, is that because we didn't have those things, we didn't use them. You know what I mean? Like we're made to live in a you know we're made to crave salt and fat because they come in with the sugar and you know they come in limited quantities and so when we get them we can gorge ourselves you know when a when a hadza finds a a, a beehive they just eat the whole damn hive mm-hmm. with their buddies and they consume 10,000 yeah. of sugar in that, and then they just have pass out and have a diabetic coma during you know but that's okay because it happens once every you know once a month or, or whatever you know or twice a year so it's not this it's not going to kill them but now of course we have all this you know access to sugar so we're going crazy so if you put a nuclear reactor uh, uh fusion in there i don't know like right now they wouldn't have any use for it but well, maybe that, they yeah, back in col- and then and then, then then it would disrupt the whole balance of human you know of, of how we're uh evolved to be but yeah yeah in earlier colonial times we would send an army in and if we wanted some resource in africa we'd send an army in and take it yeah but now instead we send in some sort of addiction so we'd sell them send them cell phones first get them addicted to the cell phones as we are addicted and then we'd say, see, look, you need the energy too. So here's oh, some instead energy. Of the, instead of the missionaries, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let me go back to the fusion. The, there's another big effect, which is that uh, fusion. There's also the, the economic. Anyway, another thing that we do is we rope them into a free trade agreement and yes. then force them to uh, drop their agricultural protections and all that stuff. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, for people who haven't, I, I presume, I don't know if you've read um, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, but he talks oh, about that process. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what that's all about. Yeah. Now, going back to the physics of things, all reactors produce heat, so mm-hmm. there's always they always have to put them near water so that the water yeah. can be used as, to cool it. Yeah. Actually, the globe is warming from trapped heat from the sun. The mm-hmm. carbon dioxide is, acts like a blanket, as everyone knows. Mm-hmm. Also, all of our industrial activity is also heating things up, but it's much smaller right now. I think it's something oh, like ten percent. Right. But if fusion worked, we would right. increase more. We would use more and more fusion. There's two things that would happen. Either we would not grow or we would grow. If we grew, it takes something like a century on a, on a century timescale for mm-hmm. the heating from industry. If we grew at something like 2% per year mm-hmm. to equal the extra warming from global warming. So we just so go there. Right? We'd cook ourselves back in the same place, but just by different means. Or if we didn't try to grow, then we, but then we wouldn't need nuclear power the nuclear the fusion power right so the waste heat is you can never get away from that and that's if it's either you're going to grow into cooking yourself or i mean you're not going to grow and if you're not going to grow then don't grow like it's easier to stop growing now than it is to stop growing later if we were going to stop growing or like we change the economic system we could transition so would there be a problem if we somehow change all the incentives in our economic system so that we're not interested in growing anymore and then you know, and I guess stabilized population or whatever. And then you switch from carbon to nuclear and it's non-growth nuclear. So you're not going to get to that point. But is aren't there still grave dangers there? Oh, of like things exploding? Of something, because from what I, like what you're saying, you always have to cool uh, a nuclear power plant. So it's always got to be near a source of water. And then you need, I forget, for some reason, you always need an, an electrical source or some other source to process or, or to keep it cool or something 
like that, not just the water, but you need some kind of energy source. And if that other energy source fails, then the nuclear power uh, reactor overheats and causes a meltdown. And isn't that just liable to happen at some point? Like the more nuclear power plants you have, the more chances, like eventually that's going to happen. No? There will be the chance of mechanical failure. Mm -hmm. That will increase. I think a bigger effect is something that your videocast slash podcast has prompted me to think, which is that you can have a tremendous concentration of power. Whoever controls the, if, you, right. if it's fission, you have access to uranium. So land yeah. access means people are in, in control. So you're going to get a dominance right. hierarchy there. Well, well, then well, the actual yeah. reactors as well. So, so the, the solution to that, because I don't know that that's, I don't know if it, I, I tend to think that it's inevitable to have some kind of locus points that you could, if somebody dominated them, that they could have, you know, a concentration of power that they would use to dominate other people. But the solution to that, I mean, one solution is like what you've been talking about is like, get rid of that access point completely. Right. And I don't know if that's feasible or not, but let's say it's not feasible. Let's say you need some kind of these loci. I don't know if that's a word, locuses of power. Then you put them under control that's diffuse. So the, the, the center of power is still there but the decision-making authority over it is diffuse around the whole world. That's there. Just anyone who depends on this nuclear power plant has a voting stake in some way or another over the operations so, of that plant. So that would have to be, if that's possible. And it, yeah. I mean, to me, that would be vulnerable to the, because of the intense concentration of the actual physical generation of the power and the yeah. mining of the uranium. Yeah. Then that would have to be very well, maintained so i don't so it would, I, I think that would be it could be stable but i think it might be un, it might work at first but it might be unstable to um, what, what would be unstable what would be unstable what do you mean what might work at the first? distribution of power right well that's the complicated thing but you'd have to have some you know like in a cooperative you have to have some kind of so you know there's the current system of power is cap capitalism now, what, what i mean by power i just mean in a if there's a plant if there's a factory if there's some kind of industry the owner has the ultimate decision making power over everything that happens with his property. So usually the owner's trying to make a profit. So the customers have some kind of influence over the owner and the market has a huge influence over the owner. But ultimately, if the owner just wants to completely put himself out of business or has a zillion dollars in the bank and wants to waste a lot of money, he can do whatever he wants. He can make all the employees wear Ronald McDonald suits and dance around and he can make the make it really unsafe to do whatever he wants. So that's that's capitalism. Owner is is the law, right? Besides the state, but let's pretend the state doesn't exist. We're living like in an anarcho-capitalist uh, paradise. The, the owner is the law. Now, if you have some kind of cooperative, well, then that power gets diffused among all the workers who work in the factory. But then they still have power over whoever needs the factory, right? So if you're producing the one source of food for the village, uh, for, your, for your region, well, the cooperative owners would have all the power over all the people in the region. But then socialism, what makes it different from cooperative type capitalism would be that everyone who, so the democratic principle, like we usually think of democracy as one man, one vote, you know, equal, equal power. But I think a better idea of democracy, it's what Michael Albert thought of years ago in the nineties. He's talking about the people involved in a decision should have a say in that decision. So like, you know, if you're in a workplace well, I want to put posters of my favorite musicians on my cubicle. Well, that doesn't affect anybody else. So no one should have a say over that. That's just me who should have a say over that, right? And, and the extent and, and the rest of that principle is the people who are affected by a decision should have a say in that decision proportional to their, uh, how that decision affects them, right? So you have like this balance, you know, now that we have computers, you can kind of algorithm, 
algorithmically dictate who has more and less powers. So you have capitalism where the owner decides everything. It's a one-man dictatorship. Uh, you have uh, over property. You have a cooperative. That's still the same principle, except it's not just one owner. It's everybody who's working is a co-owner. But usually they have to delegate power to managers. But still, everyone, still the owner principle. But once we get into socialism, the idea is everybody who's affected by a decision has a say over that decision. So if there's a nuclear power plant, the same way your co-op is going to have decision making, everyone who works in your co-op has decision making power of how much salary do we get, uh, what kind of benefits we get, how easy it is to, to fire somebody, what are the, the uh, criteria for firing someone, how, how, does the, how does everything work? Well, everyone in the community who's affected by that nuclear power plant, everyone who uses that nuclear power plant, anyone who's, who the pollution of that nuclear power plant might affect, they all have some kind of say proportionate to how much they are, they're affected by it. So that's, you just have your voting structure, your decision-making structure spread out in that way. And I don't have the exact recipe for it, but you, you know, I think we're smart enough. We can figure out ways to do that. Well, let's say that you create a system that could work. There's a separate question, which is, is the system stable? Because maybe it would work, but if you do have this, I mean, people respond to incentives and if there is a chance for someone to seize control. Oh yeah. Could they protect themselves from that happening? If not, okay. yes. Here's an example. So again, Michael Albert. I don't know if he, you know who he is, but I don't. He's, he's writing a lot about. He's like a friend of Noam Chomsky. He publishes Z Magazine, and he writes a lot about um, what kind of economy could we have that's not capitalism, but that would still be very democratic and give good good outcomes, not be a catastrophe. And, and you know, when he was starting to write about this, it was in reaction to the Soviet Union's planned economy. But uh, you know, uh, now we're anyways. There's the um, Argentine co-op movement. So at a certain point in Argentina, there was an economic crisis. It was like the early 2000s. And all of these owners basically abandoned their factories. So the workers, instead of just being like, okay, now there's no owner, let's just die of starvation, decided, well, okay, the owner left, the factory is still here. Let's just do it ourselves. So they would take over the factories. And there was a documentary on this that I saw, I think Naomi yeah. Klein did. Exactly. The Take by Naomi Klein. Yeah. And her husband or boyfriend, I forget, obviously something. Anyways, Michael Albo studied this extensively and, and, and spent a lot of time with those people. And at first it was amazing because, and it's exactly what you're talking about, like the stability of the system. So at first it was amazing. The workers were able to pay themselves like almost double. They were able to cut the price, like it was a, a suit factory. So they, they were able to lower the cost of the suits by like half, pay themselves double. I'm making up these numbers, but like lower the cost of the suits, pay themselves more. And everybody was happy and the customers were happy. They were happy. But eventually over time, the people in positions of power, the, uh, who are doing accounting, management, I forget what, you know, the people in charge of the knowledge aspects would kind of just hoard all the power for themselves. And then the employees, the, the other co-op owners eventually just felt like employees again. They felt like they were just pushed out of positions of power. And it just seemed like the old system all over again. And then they were getting less and less decision-making power over their salary, over their benefits, over what the materials they're using, all that stuff. So what they realized is they needed to rotate the positions of power. So everybody has to take a turn being the accountant. Everybody has to take a turn being the, I, I forget what, I'm, I, you know, I'm blanking on all the details, but he writes about it. Uh, I don't know. Again, so maybe I'll look it up after and send you a link, but he writes about this. There's books where he writes about this. So yeah, that's the kind of thing. It's, it's the dangers of definitely there, but we have experiences of this in the past. And so we have to be thinking exactly about what you're talking about. How do we make sure that the incentives are such that there's no way for anybody to hoard 
power. And it's always a person who's, you know, if you have like a great algorithm for determining how the democracy is going to work, well, the programmer of the algorithm has a lot of power. So how do you make sure that that person is accountable to all the other people? So that's, you just constantly need to be thinking about how does the person in the strategic locus of power going to be, uh, make sure that that person doesn't ever hoard, that, take that power or is in disincentivized from doing so, or just literally can't do it. So I don't know. I don't have all the answers, but I'm just, that that's how you have to think about it, right? When you're designing your system. And that's the whole, I don't know if you saw like that whole David Graeber critique I did. That's where I'm oh, yeah. going with that. That's what, that's, that's what brought me to you. Or that's right. what I found you. Yeah, exactly. So the whole point of that, and I, ha I haven't gotten to it yet actually in the series, or I haven't articulated very clearly yet, is that the whole point is that when we design our own systems, we need to be thinking in terms of material conditions because we are essentially creating material conditions when we design a system. So how are we going to establish conditions that disincentivize or make impossible hoarding of power, exactly like you're talking about? So yeah, okay, you're so right. If, if the system's unstable, it would not work in a collapse, but we have to design it so that it is stable. <laughs> That's the whole challenge. So I want to go back to your question about nuclear power and yes. what what we were talking about before I started recording, I'm going to introduce that and talk about, the, I think, a similar question, but from a historical perspective. So I'm going to give the example oh, of, yeah. the, of the um, Watt steam engine, and I'm going to talk about the next thing. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I think we'll talk about is that, okay, so when James Watt invented the steam engine, his steam engine in roughly 1776, yeah. it, was more, it was vastly more efficient than the previous steam engine. So it, if you get the same output for less input, People expected coal use to go down, but it didn't. It went up right. because right. each thing was more efficient, but people, more people found more reasons to use more steam engines. So use coal it, use yeah. went up, even though each right. use was down, overall right. it went up. So there's like a zillion more steam engines now. So even though if you're using a, a fifth of the energy, you're using still five times more overall uh, coal. Yeah. Again. Yeah. And economists will call this rebound effects or Jevons paradoxes. But yeah. that terminology implies that it's like the unintended side effect that possibly you could fix, but it's a fundamental property of the system. Right. If you have a system with certain values, if you make it more efficient, you'll get the same output, just more of it. Right, right. right. So if you make a polluting, more system, a polluting system more efficient, you'll pollute more efficiently. And that's, right. we've basically been chasing efficiency and we're more efficient than ever now and polluting more than ever now. And we're doing more, more than ever now. We're more efficient at doing bad things. <laughs> that's... Right. That's the problem. Yeah. Whether good or bad. I mean, different people would, some people think it's great right now. Steven Pinker is right. probably like, well, we have little side effects we don't like, but overall it's better. I'm, right. 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 And all right. There's another example that to me is more clear cut, which is Eli Whitney's cotton gin. Mm -hmm. When Eli Whitney created the, invented the cotton gin, slavery was mostly on the way out because the stuff that was being grown wasn't really conducive to growing like cotton would. It made this type of cotton they couldn't grow on the coast, I think, but couldn't, it, there's one type of cotton that was difficult to pick uh, the seeds out of, could grow all over the South. And so right. as like, as Eli Whitney's like presenting people, here's this cotton gin, the owners are thinking, uh, they're immediately like grow cotton right now because this type right. of cotton that grows like crazy, we can use. So the whole cotton industry was basically going out because yeah, you were telling me a bit more in detail before we spoke. So basically they were depleting all the topsoil. The cotton was becoming less and less economical to grow. Then all of a sudden, so slavery, which was based on cotton and tobacco, was on its way out because it wasn't economical anymore. But then this guy invents this thing that makes cotton 10 times easier to grow all over the country. So then, boom, the, the, the industry and slavery are reinvigorated. Yeah, there's, I don't know backward and forward, but and right. there's a, a few details. Like it was not much cotton before this, and then and it enabled cotton to grow. Uh, yeah, it made it a cotton that grew everywhere across the South. 
economical. Yeah. And one could have guessed, well, less labor for the same output, that means the cotton gin, and I think Eli Whitney expected this, that right. means less labor, so we can it might reduce slavery. Less slavery, right. But the people who owned the cotton gins didn't right. value less work, they right. valued more profit. So right. they immediately, they, you know, they used their resource to grow slavery. Right. That's now, the you could argue about whether yeah. they believe that what they're doing is good or bad, but it grew slavery. And so my question that I've been wondering, yeah. and I've, like from the context of, of your videos yeah. is what if there were not plantations in the South, but there had been, let's say we make a system of cooperative, mm -hmm. uh, cooperatively owned farms with, with a, you know, equal representation and so forth. And the cotton gin were introduced to that. So imagine a South with no cotton growing in it. There's a few cooperatives on the coast and suddenly the cotton gin comes in. Still a few individuals would have said, I don't need to like, the individuals might grow faster and start creating plantations where none existed. Well, yeah, the thing is that in a cooperative economy, like a cooperative capitalism economy, right, where you just, instead of having individually owned, like, you know, the individual dictators and all their army of employees uh, competing against each other, you have co-owners, firms made up of co-owners all competing against each other. You still have the same incentive structure at the end of the day. Like within the workplace, you have a different incentive structure. So in a capitalist uh, workplace, a top-down ownership uh, private property system, the owner wants to pay the workers as little as possible and put more money in his pants. But in a cooperative capitalist economy, well, the employees don't want to exploit themselves that badly. They want to make more money. So the profit will be distributed more equally within the firm. But outside of the firm, they're still going to have the same incentives. They still want to increase production. They might go get slaves, you know, to go work those cotton plantations or something you know uh, a lot of cooperative enterprises hire employees like the whole the beginning of the cooperative movement the whole idea was to get rid of the employer employee relationship but in the end of the day because of incentives a lot of cooperatives have that sort of privileged group of co-op owners and then they have a whole bunch of employees being exploited uh doing work under them so those those incentives are still there so i think you would have still had that same incentive because it's the profit economy and because there's so for me i'm not against the market i think the market does a lot of good things it gets things the market just means people that the aggregate choices that people make about what to do with their property i think that's you know to trade exchange it to produce it to destroy it what are you doing with your property that's the market i think that that's fine that people choose what to do with their property the problem is that you have the ability to accumulate unlimited amounts of property and that accumulation of property is protected by the state or even if there wasn't a state to be protected by the owners, by their private armies or whatever. And that's the problem. The fact that you can just un accumulate unlimited amounts and that you're incentivized to do so is the nature of the problem. And when Adam Smith was developing his theories of the, the market, he understood and said that basically in conditions of, he didn't put it exactly this way, but in conditions of equal bargaining power, I have a guitar that I don't really need. Uh, you have a thousand dollars that you don't need all that much. You give me the thousand dollars. I give you the guitar. We're both winners because we're both in a equal situation. But if I have this guitar and my whole, I'm a musician and my whole life depends on me having this guitar, but you're a zillionaire and you don't need this guitar at all, but you kind of want it. And you also just want to see me cry 
and I need to sell this guitar because it's the only way I'm going to get my diabetes medication without which I'll die. Or this is the only way I'm going to get a, you know, some medicine for my daughter. Well, you can give me the money and take that guitar and I have a thousand dollars and you have a guitar and you've ruined my life. You saved my life sort of, but you've also destroyed my life at the same time. And you've got this tiny little benefit and it's just because the bargaining power is so unequal that the results are not equal. The results are not mutually beneficial, right? So, or they're not equally mutually beneficial. I did get some benefit out of it, but it's just a, you know, this tiny, tiny, I get to live for like a few minutes longer. Um, So under conditions of equality, the market generates those optimal results where people are just making choices about what to do with their property. The choices are always mutually beneficial, but under conditions of inequality and unlimited property accumulation, the results become more and more distorted because the less equal the bargaining, the less equal the, the partners are in any contract, the less equal their, the benefits are, right? Like in any contract, there's obligations. My obligation is, my, you know, there's something I have to give you and then the benefits. So the more unequal the bargaining power, the, the lower my bargaining power, the more obligations I have and the less benefits I get. Meaning like the more hours I have to work for you a week and the less money I get. And the more profit you get from me and the less you have to give me, it's the opposite. When your bargaining power is higher, you have the, you have to, the less obligations to give and the more benefits to get. So that's the problem. And that problem still exists when enterprises are cooperative within a capitalist, private property, unlimited accumulation economy. I'm going to throw in another thing. Uh, the, the material situation when the cotton gin was introduced was that from the perspective of, of the colonialists, mm-hmm. there was an open continent. And mm. so the, there, mm. it wasn't just firms competing with, the, with each other in one market. It was also a giant open space from their perspective right. to expand into so that even if something was happening with the existing ones, someone else could go out and just get some new ones. Right. And they would not be bound by any of the existing system. Right. I want to throw in something else that part, something I'm writing about in my book is that mm-hmm. all right, let's go back to if I have, I make something and uh, I make it really well. So mm-hmm. you value the thing more than your money and we find a price. So you value the thing more than, than yeah. that amount of money for you. I value money more than that amount of money, more than my thing. Yeah. We trade, we both benefit. Okay. Yeah. That sounds great, but mm-hmm. it's not always like that. You, so you describe what if one has a bit of course of power or, um, but there's another situation. What if I, to make my thing, I used slave labor. Yeah. Then the slave doesn't benefit. Right. And I think we've decided that no amount of slavery like let's say you and I benefit a lot and the slave gets hurt somehow less than that. We still say that's not worth it. It's qualitatively different. No slavery, there cannot be free trade under slavery. Right. Cause no human being, just your humanity negates slavery negates humanity and your basic rights as a human. And we, we have that sort of fundamental value. And, that I, and I think have. that that is the case with child labor. I think we've made mm-hmm. that decision. Yeah, uh, even though that's even though that's technically free exchange of labor. See, that's the whole thing is the arguments against child child labor to me are the arguments against any uh, capitalist <laughs> labor. Like that's the same arguments applied to adults. Oh well, their children is, is in such a weak position of power. Well, how many McDonald's employees are in such a weak position of power? How many miners in South Africa are in such a weak position of power? It's just that we have normal um, more human sympathy towards children than we do towards adults. So. <laughs> That's, 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 you've got that's me the thinking. only difference. All right. Now let me get to another one is that let's say for me making my product, I pollute. 
no one consented to no pollution by definition means something is harming someone somewhere else. Yes. Right. So it seems to me that pollution falls under the same category of it's hurting someone that can't, there's no free trade. You can't possibly have free trade when people are non-consenting to being harmed by cancer and birth defects. So if me and you are doing some great exchanges and I'm building microchips chips and making iPhones and you're buying them and who knows what we're making a lot of everything is a great party, but then we're exporting all of the, you know, all the labor is like slave labor in uh, Congo and then we're exporting all the pollution to Mexico. Yeah, there's, there's the problem here. And this is the problem that the type of socialism that I always talk about is, is designed to fix because in the kind of economy I'm talking about, we still might have a free exchange of goods, but the fact that somebody is going to be harmed by the pollution or by anything else gives them a say in the decision. So if we decide, well, we're going to build these iPhones, well, the people who are going to be in the area where the lithium is mined and it might disrupt their, you know, habitat or whatever they're doing, you know, their economy, well, they might have a, they should have a say in it. And that's the whole, you know, that whole American economy was built on just disrupt and still is today, right? When we're just building like an Alaskan pipeline. I remember in the nineties watching CNN or something and seeing this Republican Senator from Alaska talking about how, We need to build this pipeline because there's people here in the Native American communities that don't have jobs and they need jobs. But the thing is that the Native Americans were talking about is when you build that pipeline, you're disrupting the animal uh, roots and they don't need jobs. I mean, now they do, but that they didn't need jobs as much. What they needed to do is be able to hunt those animals to feed themselves. (laughs) Building that pipeline disrupted, destroyed the entire Native American economy, but they didn't have any say over that their democratic input didn't count. So what you're doing is giving everybody a say who is affected by something in proportion to how much they're affected by it. That would stop a lot of, so net right now it's like, okay, well, we have to dump this nuclear waste somewhere, but we're not going to put it in Beverly Hills because the people in Beverly Hills know how to organize. They know how to hire lobbyists. They have all this money, but the people in the, I don't know what Georgia, you know, this, this rural area of Georgia, we're going to put it there because those people don't know how to organize. So this idea this democratic principle would would stop that from happening and people might decide well we're not going to produce this nuclear waste anywhere because there's nobody who's accept going to accept the consequences for it and it's not worth the the benefits aren't worth the consequences and also some stuff when you pollute into the atmosphere it's everyone so everyone gets a vote yeah but i don't know how practical that is except to say i mean i can imagine a world in which we don't allow pollution Mm-hmm. I mean, even the most conservative who believes a government should protect life, liberty, and property, well, pollution mm-hmm. destroys life, liberty, and property. Yeah. yeah. So it seems to me that at some point you have to it, either, I'm going to put it uh, maybe high and sounding, yeah. but it, like Abraham Lincoln talked about, if you have a constitution that both protects your freedom and my ability to take away your freedom, right? you have a house divided that cannot stand. Yeah. And it doesn't work. You can't, yes. it, it simply, the system itself is broken and yeah. you have to fix it. And so the right. 13th amendment did that. Yeah. Well, you know, and there's, there's reconstruction, lots of, it, it wasn't perfect, but it was, it was absolutely, it was necessary as right. long as, so that the constitution had to be fixed. I think that no one could have conceived in 1776 or soon after that we could have filled the ocean with more plastic than fish and right. you know, warmed the globe. If they had, I think they would have put something in to not allow this to happen. Now we're several centuries in of yeah. a system that requires polluting. It used to be 
before say the about the green revolution nothing for life required polluting as we know right. because pollution didn't exist oh before hey, a certain you, time what do you mean no that's that's not that's not true. okay pollution i'm not counting pollution as things like burning wood things that happened before humans like poop and exhalation right. and right. forest fires that oh, happened oh, before okay. humans but i just mean because you said the green revolution so what do you okay so because, like, if, if you if you look at pre-industrial human beings fucked up a lot of environments at that time you know not on the same scale or in the same level of destruction but they definitely screwed up their environments uh, at those times as well yes they did there were lots of collapses before so i I spoke a little too glibly but we know that people can live sustainably yes uh, for a long long period of time yeah i mean much longer than since the industrial revolution until now yeah 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 the mechanics of that are super interesting like if you see the way like among the what are they called hunter gatherers or was it the hads i get mixed up but there's they had this concept of akila which is like a weird karma concept and then and, and they just put different taboos on hunting different animals at different times weirdly like they don't understand the mechanics of it but they see it as a self as a animal preservation tactic like all of a sudden oh now it's becoming uh, you know it's bad akila to hunt the blue antelope or whatever it's called you know and that just means that the blue antelope can start replenishing itself but the the reason behind it they don't see like where it's coming from because sometimes these ideas are conscious preservation like if you talk to the native person from that culture they're they're, they will say ultimately like well yeah like the idea is they have to live and they they understand what they're doing but other times they don't but it still works interesting anyhow sorry yeah i presume it evolves through some not not Darwinian evolution, but some similar evolutionary process. Yeah. The, the societies where those things popped up, it worked and it stuck. Right. Yeah. So now I forgot where I was. Oops, but, oh, but, but there's a question I wanted to ask you because yeah. you talked about Adam Smith and his theories. Yeah. And my understanding is that Adam Smith didn't create capitalism. He described what had already developed around him. Yes. And the reason that's important to me is that a lot of people think we have to come up with an alternative in order to switch to it. But I think we don't have to have formed the alternative ahead of time because that's not how capitalism formed in the first place. Yeah. We can just like, we could just start it. If we created in the United States, a parallel to the 13th amendment, the 13th amendment ended sla- made slavery legal, except mm-hmm. under certain conditions. If we had something that made pollution and depletion not allowed, then, well, that would throw us into a tailspin because we couldn't use yeah. fossil fuels Everything and so forth. Apart. But yeah. we know that we can, in principle, live sustainably. Oh, the, so the Green Revolution made it so that oh, yeah. food requires fossil fuel inputs. I see. So I see. suddenly that changed that we, before then, if in 1800 we said, let's get, not stop using all fossil fuels, right. it would be a shock to the system, but I think no one would die. Right. Because but if we did it today, work, yeah. we rec- we need fossil fuels currently to keep. You know, we went from yeah. something like, I mean, I, my read is that we something like two to three billion could be sustained without fossil fuels, uh, sustainably long term. Yeah, but we have eight billion that can be sustained right. short term with fossil fuels, but we get all these. And by the way, nuclear would not help on that because nuclear doesn't work with the creating ammonium for uh, fertilizer. Oh, okay. And it also doesn't work with shipping and long haul trucking, a lot of other things that. Right, um, right, right. You can't. There's no nuclear powered cars and trucks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cars aren't the issue. It's bigger things, trucks and uh, container ships. 
if we need to create a new system to switch to it, I think we will never switch because, but that's never, I don't think it's ever happened that way. Right. That, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Like, it's funny. Yeah. I haven't looked into it. I wonder, but yeah, it's usually something that evolves naturally. And you know, that was Karl Marx's thing, right? His idea was that socialism was going to evolve naturally out of capitalism just because of the, the situation. I don't know. Uh, so what, so what are you saying then? We don't have to wait. Okay. There's a lot of people saying this system in, in, in economics, a lot of people are saying we have to create an alternative to capitalism. We have to create an alternative to the system that's, that's resulting in these, in these problems. Right. I don't know the incentives. Here's something I, 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 I forget if it was after we started recording or before, but when I, one of the things I've learned in all my experiments, now this is on a personal scale, but um, yeah. is that if I try to solve all the problems that could happen before I start, right. I will never start because I can think yeah. of an infinite number of problems or the way I usually put it is yeah. if you give a team of economists and engineers a challenging problem and you give them a, a budget and time and money, yeah. they will use up all the time and all the money and come back <laughs> to you and say, we're almost done. We need a little bit more of each. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Whereas if you actually, now if it's something like life or death, and this right. may be a life or death thing for society, but if, yeah. if it's something life or death, that's another story. Like I'm not going to be like, oh, I wonder if I cannot eat for like a month. Right. Like, that's not something I, I would talk I to a doctor, but if it's not eating that. for a day or two, water only, yeah. a lot of people have done it. Well, I've done it and it's yeah. no big deal. Like that's something, just do it and find out. Yeah. But something like, can I unplug my apartment from the electric grid? Right. The goal of a month, knowing I can plug it in anytime I want. Right. I just do it. And then what I learned is tremendous. Like I can't describe how much more I'm learning than I ever could have dreamt. Yeah. So if we wait, right. people like Herman Daly are trying to figure out like, what could we, what would be a different system that we could use? If we wait for that answer, I think we'll wait forever. I mean, I think you kind of need to do both. You need to be thinking about that because you don't want, if you just let things evolve naturally, the thing is that there's people with all the power and money and they're just going to, make sure that things evolve in a way that keeps them having the power and money. So you want to kind of think about things that make sure that nobody has too much power and money, but at the same time, you have to do things immediately now and not just wait until the perfect, you know, we're not going to make this transition all of a sudden one day to this perfect system. You want to do whatever you can do now, but just have the principles in mind of, of where you're trying to go. So I think you just both, both of those things. I mean, I value more doing stuff now than having a, de I, I think you have a general idea of what you want to, where you want to go, but not necessarily all the details. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, but I don't know. I think there's room for everybody to do their own thing. Maybe a detailed plan would, would come into, you know, like those cooperatives in Argentina, like they were doing it on the spot. And now we've learned lessons about that yeah. that we can apply to, to a larger scale. So that's, and and we'll make, you know, when, when things, there might be a crisis of this or a crisis of that, that we can't predict. And then all of a sudden things will change by having thought about them, by having debated them, by having learned from those experiences, we can make better decisions when the time comes versus just making a terrible mistakes the first time, you know, everything's trial and error. So you want to get the errors out of the way before you have the big uh, trial. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like this is what your podcast is about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the way. I want to get the thinking straight. Well, yeah. Well, the, the point of the podcast is. At some point, things are going to happen and change will take place. That just happens all the time in, in life and great desire for it now. But the ideas that are floating around have a lot to do with where 
people's allegiances will lie. And, you know, I'm going to get to that a bit in the Russian Revolution. Like the Russian Revolution turned out the way it did for different reasons. But one of them is like, who was thinking what at the time? What were the ideas that were current? What kind of that's what shapes how people react to stuff. So right now, a lot of the current anti-establishment ideas, there's a weird mix of like libertarianism. There's some social democracy in there. There's weird right wing stuff. It's, it's a, and it, it could all be just be a recipe for fascism <laughs> or something terrible, right? Like you could see the right person charismatic person come and steer everybody the wrong way because you know like donald trump was running around promising everyone free health care and people you know if you don't know enough that might make sense to you you know and there's a lot of republicans now presenting themselves as enemies of the big banks and the big corporations because the corporations are too woke and the corporations are are pushing all this environmental policy on us like all this nonsense it doesn't make any sense but if you don't know that much it does make sense to you and you will lend your support in that direction so what i want to do is just clear out all the gunk that's in people's heads all the confusion you know a lot of it has to do with just ill-defined terms that make us very easy to manipulate so if we can kind of gunk all that gunk out of our heads and then have a clear run. And I see more and more like people on ever since COVID too, a lot of people that would definitely have been left-wing people 10 years ago are now like following all these right-wing media sources because they had, you know, they shared their, their COVID skepticism or whatever. And I see them sharing like left-wing stuff and right-wing stuff all at the same time, stuff that totally contradicts each other politically, but they don't, they don't see it. So what I want to do is just get people to understand, well, you know, I'm not going to tell you what you think or what you should think or what you should want. But I am going to help you understand how to articulate exactly what it is that what you want. And then for you to be able to see what other people like the politicians and, 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 and industry and people around you, what, what they actually want to do, regardless of what they say and the language they use, so that you can see who your allies are and who your enemies are, you know, uh, and that's what I want. And I have some kind of faith. And of course, I do want to propagate certain ideas. And I think people should have some ideas that I have. So there's some proselytizing there, too. But I think that. I have some faith that people want enough people want similar things to what I want and uh, that they will choose those things if they understand what, what it is and who's offering it and who isn't and, and what there's to do about it. Yeah. yeah. And I think the reason you get those reviews that I read and why I like your stuff so much is that it really does clear out the muck. And Thank you. Yes. I have this new game. Whenever I see a dominance hierarchy, I, I ask myself, what's the resource that's being controlled mm. by whom? It's fun and, and like figuring out how things work. So, okay, I'm going to apply it to yeah. something. Yeah. When we, we were talking about changing the system very quickly. So if, if we were to say there's a movement afoot to make a constitutional amendment uh, mm. guaranteeing the right to clean air, clean land, uh, to yeah. a clean environment. I, yeah. I am a little partial to an amendment like that that would be not allowing pollution that would be just like the 13th, uh, like the 13th amendment. So I'm looking what do you mean at like the 13th, what do you mean? Like the 13th amendment? Like what's the, so the 13th amendment says slavery, shall, slavery and indentured servitude is not allowed in the United States. Yeah. It was up until then in, yeah. it was a state issue before then the States, some States had become free and some States remain slave mm -hmm. uh, and the free ones were not able to influence the other ones. And mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln and, and others recognized that a, a constitutional amendment would that was the only thing that would do it. He described right. it as a king solution. Yeah. No, the early ideas, they, they were talking about allowing to the end of, to 1900, to, for the slave states to end slavery. 
And you might think, well, there's a big economy and that would be a big shock to the system. Maybe we should go a little slow. But from the slave's perspective, that sounds terrible. Right. Hey, we think right. what's happening is terrible, but you have to understand that the people who own the plantations have an economy and we don't want to shock their system. So you have to be a slave for another 30 years. Yeah. So in the end, they said it's right away. Now, there was, this was at the end of the Civil War. So there's a lot of turmoil all over the place. But, but at first, yeah. I was just, yeah. I wanted to learn more and more about abolition. And I did learn a lot and I'm still learning a lot. And how did the 13th Amendment pass? Because even the morning of the House vote, no one imagined, no one knew it would pass. And oh, wow. all these amazing things, an amazing coincidence of things, all of it built on something like a century of people working in, with no expectation of success right. that made it possible in that brief moment. Wow. So there was a lot of people who anyone could have told them what you do doesn't matter. And it would definitely look like that. But yeah. when it did matter, suddenly it all mattered. All of a sudden it did. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, no, I don't know. I know very little about that. So that's super interesting. Yeah. So what I'm learning now is about reconstruction because, and because of, and okay, so learning about reconstructive after watching your stuff is totally different because the law of the land was now that slavery was illegal, but the ownership of the land, which means all the, I mean, I think of it in uh, physics background. So I tend to think of why, why is the land important? It's arable land in particular, because arable land gives you food and cotton and that's ultimately solar energy. So it's power. It's literal yeah. physics power. Yeah. But yeah. because the plantation owners retain their land and some of the land yeah. was taken to be given, to be distributed. But yeah. when Lincoln was killed and uh, the next guy was a Democrat, which Democrats then were the, 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 the Republicans today. Yeah. So he was like, if you petitioned him, he'd give you your plantation back. So they all started right. getting their land back and the power... Right. The, the controllable resource didn't change. And so reconstruction, right. for a little and, bit, there was, there were the more- And the slaves got their 40 acres and a mule that the, that the other people got, so they never- Some did, but then yeah. it got squeezed back out because right. the bargaining power was as you describe. Was just, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's amazing, yeah. And so that's why still a century later, Martin Luther King, you know, it, it's- Right. They it had to didn't fight. finish the job. Even that part though, even just getting that 13th amendment, right? And, that, and that's the whole thing, right? Like laws are only as useful as they are enforceable. But even that they had to have a civil war just to get that to happen. So I'm thinking like, if there's going to be an anti-pollution, uh, you know, the, the other amendment that I think is really interesting is to get money completely out of politics. They, they've been talking about an amendment to do that for the last like 10, 20 years. Since Citizens United, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or before, they've been talking about that before, but that really like uh, spurred that debate more. And that like in, in Occupy, actually, you know, I fault the, the Occupy organizers for refusing to issue any demands, but there's a lot yeah. of people who do want demands. And there's a whole battle in Occupy that doesn't get talked about that much, that there are people who are like, hey, we have all this attention. We have all this bargaining power in a sense. Let's, and, and all this popularity, like it was shockingly, extremely popular. Politicians were kind of afraid of the occupiers. I forget, uh, Obama wanted to pass a bunch of pro Wall Street legislation, but he stopped because he was afraid that the, that the scrutiny would be on it because of Occupy. So it actually had an effect. And then the, the Occupy organizers, they had actually these democratic uh, rules to allow people to, to pass different resolutions. But then they kept rigging because they realized that there was a certain contingent of people who just wanted to pass some demands from power. But the Occupy organizers were so convinced that, no, if you make any demands, if you interact with the, the powers that be at all, you're, you're polluting your pure Enlightenment Buddha self, that they just refused they they cha- they rigged the rules and they they rigged the system that they they you know they changed the the threshold for passing a resolution from resolution from like seventy five percent to ninety percent just to make sure that nothing ever passed. 
And one of the things that they wanted to pass was to get an amendment to get money out of politics. And I think that would have, you know, been really important. Or another one's take away corporate personhood is another big uh, popular idea. But to get those things in the first place, you kind of have to have a civil war first. Like you or have overwhelming to have popular support because the British got well, yeah. The yes. British didn't have a civil war. No, it wasn't. The civil war right. wasn't on their soil. Now, right. I know that you have to go in a couple minutes. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to say I'm having a good time. I'm going to I'll need to message my friend. <laughs> anyway, let's, let's keep talking for a bit. I'm going to message my other friend, Josh. Keep talking I'm gonna, well, I, until he starts bugging me. Well, yeah. I hope that we can. This is the second conversation, but I hope we can get a third because one big question I wanted to ask you about also is, is your thoughts on sustainability and the environment, because the comments on in Patreon and the Patreon page yeah. about our conversation didn't yeah. get why I was talking about fossil fuels. And I think the overlap between your work and sustainability is really high. And I'm not sure how much the comments. What I remember is that people had the same skepticism that I had last time, but I, actually I want to get back to what you were just saying though, because it's, it's okay. but, but, but the, because last time, before we get into this other debate, I, I want to finish what you were, you were just talking about the idea that dominance hierarchies are some people, uh, Hierarchy exists, is able to exist when some people control access to resources that other people can't get, that don't have, they don't have a preferable option besides submitting themselves to the authority of the people who control that resource. So that resource could be oil, it could be food, you know, Kissinger said, if you control the food, you control the people, it could be social, education, it could be education, it could be social life, right? Uh, Why does a cult, why do people submit themselves to cults? Why do they give their money to the, well, eventually they, they give their bank information and, and their passports to the cult leaders. So they're trapped. But at first you give all that stuff to the cult leaders because they're providing family and community, which is a resource that human beings need. And, and you don't see any other way of getting that. That's where they get their authority from. So it could be all kinds of stuff, right? Different, hier- like, you know, a lot of the cancel culture, social hierarchy stuff is about access, controlling access to community and friends and things like that. Yeah. So you were saying that oil, fossil fuels is a locus of power. And if we got rid of fossil fuels, it would get rid of a lot of the the dominance hierarchy in the world. And I'm skeptical of that because it would just, there's just so many other loci of dominance hierarchy that I don't know that that would change. Like it would change some things like U.S. imperialism would change. Uh, There'd be less, uh, you know, impetus to control the, the Middle East, for example, and other places like that. So let me put it as a a less, let's not say, will it solve everything or even a lot, but let's just say, is it, is it a source of, if there's a, the big question in, in, um, in uh, Dawn of Everything was why are we stuck? And it seems to me that there's a, there's a huge resource that's being controlled and that's fossil fuels and uranium and fusion wouldn't change that. And so if that, as long as that exists, I think, I don't see a way out of the dominance. But I, I don't, again, because I don't think the problem is that there are those resources. I mean, fossil fuels is pro- and nuclear power problematic for all the other reasons that we always talk about. But the fact that they, their potential concentrate, like so is electricity, right? Like you ever see that there's a show called C, I think it's called C, where everyone's blind and it's Jason Momoa. <laughs> Anyways, the, I the queen, it. you have seen it? I have not. Oh, okay. Anyways. It's a fun little show, but the 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 queen of the territory, like it's in a post-industrial uh, collapse uh, society, and everyone's blind. The person who's the queen of the the feudal kingdom that's emerged is the one who controls the ele- electric power plant, 
so you're going to get rid of the fossil fuels, but you still have all these other loci of power. And our society is just built around these, these things. So I don't know that you could get rid of it, but the solution is you, you democratize them. You make decision-making spread out and you create systems that prevent anyone from hoarding that resource or controlling that resource, divorced from the other people who depend on it and use it. I think that's the, solu- the way you want to go. Well, I don't see these as, as exclusive, though. Like getting rid of fossil fuels makes sense because of the environmental damage it's causing less than as a loci of, of dominance hierarchy, I think. It's just because otherwise we're getting rid of electricity, get rid of anything. Like everything is somebody's going to control it, can control it. To, to just take it out of their hands and spread out the power equally. Don't get rid of the thing itself unless the thing in and of itself is problematic, which fossil fuels are. So the reason for getting rid of them are different. So the people commenting on the Patreon, just they're seeing things the way I do, you know, that's the, well, I'm not saying, yeah, I am saying that getting rid of fossil fuels and things that pollute will improve our health and things like that and the environment, but that's independent. And I think we, we get that that's, we're treating those things separate. Yeah. As the other thing is that I'm not saying that getting rid of fossil fuels will end the dominance hierarchy. I'm saying, but I'm saying if we don't, we can't, it's necessary, but not sufficient. I don't, I just don't know that. It's, I think we ended up the same way as everything else. Distribute the power. Oh, I'm not saying not to do that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I think they're of- totally, in, I think those things are independent. You're saying we could, if the fossil fuel, if, independent of the health and environmental issues, if we kept fossil fuels, we could democratize. I yeah. agree with that. Yeah. And then, and then that would take away the, like we could get unstuck from global hierarchy while keeping fossil fuels, if fossil fuels weren't a catastrophe for the environmental reasons. I don't think that the, I don't think that that's the, like it is a problem in the sense that the United States tries to exert dominance over fossil fuels by keeping the Saudi regime where it is, by constantly invading the Middle East and other countries. Iran is a victim of, uh, you know, fossil fuels. So, yeah, but... That's right, not, so, you know, Nor- Norway is full of fossil fuels. Alberta is full of fossil fuels and they're not lording. Well, anyways, that's, that's a, a different issue. So, so there, yeah. is a, there is a retor- an, an abstract academic question of are fossil fuels contributing to being stuck? But I'm, I'm fine with not pursuing that because yeah. there's plenty of other reasons to, to stop using them. Yeah. Uh, as well, and, and which apply to uranium and, and fusion. And by the way, I'll send you a link to... Uh, deep dive stuff. Yes. Tom Murphy writes, he's, he's very similar to you. I mean, what you say about unmucking people's minds about politics, he's unmucking people's minds about our understanding of nature, about science. Yeah. 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 Sure. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There are equations here or there, but it's generally, I think stuff that people can understand. I mean, he wrote a a textbook for non-science majors that is like, I did a blog post calling it the science book of the decade. I I think Uh, it really just simply looks at things from the basic physics level you walk off of his stuff. Like I, I, I walk away from his stuff the way I walk away from your stuff. It's like, Oh, <laughs> that's how to look at it. Sucker. I'm a sucker for those compliments. But yeah, no, it's just, it's funny. I hate when I was a student, especially I had a lot of professors that I really respected, but I just made sure that I never kissed their ass. Cause I just thought it's gross, but I see that it re- ass kissing did work on them. Other students would do it, but I worked so hard on these fucking things. Like that last video, the Russian revolution took four months of working full time while I'm also being a lawyer, while I'm also dealing with all this other crap for pittance amount of money. And then it really means a lot when people, um, 
that they're getting out of it what I intended to, uh, to do, you know, that my intentions are being fulfilled. Well, yeah. you may feel the way you might have felt had I asked, kiss your ass, but I was not kissing your yeah. ass. I'm, I'm, no, no, I'm no, simply no. stating. No, no, I understand. I, I, just think I, I accept the compliments. Like I'm very happy to get those compliments. Yeah. Have you thought about going in the direction of a book or are people talking to you about? Um... Yes. A lot of people have mentioned that, but the, at the end of the day, the way I see it, and you tell me, because you're writing a book, and you know, it's funny, all the podcast people that I talk to, like Arnold Schroeder of uh, Fight Like an Animal and Tom O'Brien from Alpha to Omega, the people I talk to a lot on podcasts, they're all writing books. On the one hand, a book is great because it would condense. I'm sort of developing a book as I'm doing the videos. Like I'm trying to develop my theory, my theoretical universe from A to Z. A book would do that and have it all in one place. So it's useful in that sense. But at the end of the day, how many people read a book? If my last the Russian, the first uh, video on communism had like 80,000 views. This one has 40,000 views. Is that, how many people read a book, like a successful book? 40,000, 50,000 people? I feel like you're reaching the same amount of people or, or, or more doing videos than yeah, it's a, the, books. The world has changed. In, in my case, I it, have... It's just that the, the people who read the books might be more influential people, like the people who might talk on Twitter or, or write articles in... in publications with more influence so that's there's that but i don't know if it's worth you know i'm trying to get it to as many people out there as possible so is it worth me spending a well, year a book, but... writing a book and then not doing videos to get the smaller audience who's more influential uh, you know i don't know that that's a good use of my energy you know so maybe you're, you're doing the optimal thing i don't know i might do a book afterwards i, I do want to c- condense everything into one thing but i might just do a book video i might just do a video that condenses all my arguments into a, a simple form and maybe the transcript of that can be a book I, I don't know it's very difficult for me to organize my time it's really hard for me to make these videos as they are and just making a book i'd have to just stop everything i'd have to stop making videos entirely to do that and it doesn't seem like a good idea at this point yeah it makes sense uh, after watching yours i think i mentioned this last time is i started thinking maybe i should do a series of videos just like yours except on a totally different subject or not totally but my subject and I started yeah. moving in that direction. I don't know if I told you, like, yeah, I think I emailed you about this, that I, I started practicing with the teleprompter. Yeah, and, yeah. But then ultimately I came back to the book. I could have gone either way. I'm going book because there's like a unit, unitary. Yeah. It's cohesive. Yeah. And it's a different audience. Like, look, the people I'm reaching, I think it's a lot of young people. It's a lot of, when you write a book, you're reaching more important or powerful audiences. So there's definitely, a, there's a benefit to that as well, right? Like there was, um, you know, some scholars, what Peter Turchin, the, I forget the other guy, the people who run, you know, Peter Turchin runs a journal of cryodynamics. Do you know who Peter Turchin is? I don't know. Oh, is it, look up his stuff. It's really interesting. So his latest thing was about predicting. It's a lot about hierarchy and, and systems and, and predicting economic collapses and violence. And it's an interesting analysis of the Russian revolution too, that is sort of aligned with mine. They invited me to write a David Graeber review for their journal and i would love to except it's just the time that it would take to do that doesn't make sense especially because there's no money and actually when i make videos i at least get some patreon money every time i make a video writing a, a book i don't know is there money reaching the, the most amount of people is my priority but i do think i don't think it's a bad thing to do a book i think you definitely can get the ear of a more important or influential audience that way at least yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that you're thinking about it and trying to and like exploring what might come next. Because I mean, maybe it would be like a big documentary. 
I think the I'm, best way to do it is keep doing what you're doing. I develop my theories as I make each time I make a video, I develop my theories further and further, further. And maybe once I feel like, okay, I have, I really have this fleshed up. Maybe I'll turn that into a book at some point. Or if there's, if I'm making enough money at that time that I can take the time off to write a book and feel okay without destroying my life, then maybe that would be a good, you know, there's these financial incentives too. But right now in terms of reaching the maximum amount of people and efficiently putting my time towards something that gets the most attention. I feel like this is what I'm doing now is the thing to do. How surprised were you that you got the audience that you got? I mean, <laughs> to, to not be humble at all. Like, I really think that I, I'm onto something important. So it doesn't surprise me at all. It surprises me like, oh, it's taken this long. <laughs> like it's the other, you know, I'm like, dude, I, I should have a bigger audience. You know, and people write that. They're like, oh my God, I can't believe how few, you know, because you see you have other channels out there that get a lot more views i also think that maybe what i'm doing is a bit too highfalutin even though my my goal is to really reach the broad audience i think i'm good at reaching an educated audience like i have a lot of people say oh you know i show these videos to my kids which is amazing like that's what i want if, if a 12 year old can understand this that's what you need like everything should be at a, at a grade five level right i still feel like man I, I really need to go for a broader audience not not just to be popular because i don't that's not what i care about is to get the ideas out to the people who when i was a kid like when i was you know young the amount of people who had a lot of these ideas was minuscule you know you had uh, noam chomsky running around talking about things and you, bar you barely had anything you didn't have a lot of people talking about a lot of these issues uh, yeah democracy now was like the one alternative news source that you had and now you have so many sources, so many people, so many bright minds, and the quality of the rhetoric and the discourse and the ideas is so high. Like you have people that are kind of like bozo clown, you know, Chapo Trap House is just a bunch of dorks, but they're very bright and, you know, analysts. Cenk Uger, who, uh, you know, I don't have the same exact politics as him, but he has some very brilliant analyses of the Democratic Party. You just have so many, such a broad range of stuff, but it's still limited to like a small audience. I want to break out of that little bubble and get to a more mainstream audience. A lot of people who are just falling for a lot of weird right-wing conspiracy stuff. And like Russell Brand talks to a lot of people. I think those people need to hear what I, what I have to say more. Uh, so I'm not surprised that it's getting popular. I'm needs to get more popular i don't know you know it's taken and it took you know two two three years to get to where it is so but at the same time like other people are cranking out a video a week or something you know and, and doing one every three months so in that sense it, it does move fast if you per video but i want to uh, what were we talking about just before all this we we're getting back to the the civil war and passing and re the how reconstruction ended up uh -oh. they they made a law and the yeah. law did have federal authority to but then in the South, they sent federal troops in. Right. Ultimately, there was a really close election and they made this compromise where one party got the presidency and the other party got control over the South. Right. And right. that just meant that that didn't fully undo the Civil War or the 13th mm -hmm. Amendment. It was sharecropping, which was, yeah. you know, if you looked, you couldn't, you'd have to look really hard to see the difference between sharecropping and slavery. Yeah, it's, well, it's exactly like in the Russian Revolution, right? The Tsar uh, emancipated the serfs officially in 1861, but then they made sure that all the serfs were completely indebted to their landlord. They made the, the serfs pay off the indemnity for the land that they were taking from their landlords. The, although the landlords had been basically stealing their labor and had stolen their land for the past like 800 years, they made the serfs pay indemnities to the landlords 
uh, that were so high that they basically were debt slaves to them. So really all the, the power relations of serfdom kept going. So when you read them talking about the Russian Revolution, the, the participants are still talking about feudalism, even though feudalism had ended 50 years before. It's, it's like it hadn't ended, like no one actually thought of it as having ended. So they, even if a constitutional amendment could, in principle, solve the, let's say the wording was just perfect, yeah. you'd still need overwhelming popular support first, yeah. I mean, yes. just to pass it, but also for it to make a difference. Yeah, you need popular, exactly. And, and also, this is what people need to realize if you when you have left-wing ideas, is they have to, you can't have left-wing anything without a massive popular support. If you're shoving something down somebody's throat by authoritarian means, it's not left-wing stuff anymore. <laughs> it's, dicta- it's dictatorship. You need this massive popular support, but you also need people to, like what you're talking about, that's a very good example of, they had to break the, the land of the big land owners, or else the 13th Amendment was just on paper, right? And the reconstruction that's what took the power away ultimately from black people who were, and they were getting elected to office. They were getting all their freedoms. There was that flourishing moment between the civil war and then between the Jim Crow times. But yeah, that's, and that was a material basis for that. And that's the thing that we have to keep our eye out for, but yeah, you need popular support. Popular support is, is ideas, but it's also material reality because it's also a force. You know what I mean? Like popular Something that has overwhelming popular support has an element of force to it from below. But I, so if you're going to make an amendment to like get rid of pollution and also people might vote for pollution, they might be like, well, look, here are the cost benefit analysis of pollution. No pollution. We don't have running water. I don't know. You know, we have no electricity. I don't know how to live without electricity. I don't have products that I love with pollution. I live 10 years less because I get cancer because there's all this waste. They might just be like, well, how about, half the pollution five years longer you know what i mean there, there's people might doesn't mean that they'll eliminate it completely you know yeah so it's not popular support of like let's just i mean it would require a lot of organization and people understanding things because if people yeah. think that what's the general view of the average person about hadza and san and tsunami tsunami like i think the average person thinks that's the worst that's like the living in the stone age you're dying yeah. at 30 if you get a cut, you're going to get gangrene and die. Yeah. I don't think they have any sense that there's, they also probably thought that they were subject to their chiefs and that they had male dominance and that they're completely superstitious. And yeah, that's the, that's the view of those societies. And the average so as long as those views are there. So anthropology is like a majorly important science for sustainability, yeah. because I if we think-, think the alternative to, to quote progress is the stone age and, you know, never knowing where your next meal is going to be, well, whatever comes with progress, I guess we'll have to take it. But- yeah. At the same time, you have to offer an alternative vision where you can still keep 8 billion people on the planet, right? Because the Stone Age, I mean, we're optimized for the Stone Age. I'm sure people in the Stone Age would love to live, you know, on, on average longer and not die from, from a lot of those diseases. But also a lot of those diseases didn't exist in the Stone Age because a lot of those diseases are the result of agriculture and uh, pastoralism. But that's another story. But you still die of infections and cuts and things like that you'd have to, what does a sustainable economy look like where we can still function? You know, you're one guy living in New York who's able to live with like 90% less of a footprint than everybody else. So how does that look like on a mass scale that functions where we can still have, you know, but in, in part, you're still dependent on, you know, you still have to use NYU. Well, that's because I'm interfacing with a society that has not made that shift. But if the society right. makes that shift, that's going to be, there so may be some you- of that, but a lot less. Yeah. How does the society do it so that you can keep 
because the Stone Age would be great in a lot, of, you know, there's those anarcho-primitivists, but the problem is that hunting and gathering can only sustain one person per square kilometer on average. So how do we, you know, that's, there's too many people for that to be possible anymore. So you need some kind of, you need agriculture, you need some kind of industrial something to sustain all the people. So how do you do that while being sustainable? What are the trade-offs? How can you, and you got to pitch that, you have, you have to have a, an idea of how that is and then pitch it and convince people that that's more pre- that's preferable. You haven't talked about population. You're, you're taking for granted that the population would stay at 8 billion. Well, how would it go down? I mean, it probably is going down with as populations age and with industrialization, you delay child rearing because it's too expensive and it's not economically beneficial. But then you get all these other problems because then you have an older and older population that you have to sustain and the young people have to sustain their kids and their grandparents who are living longer and longer, like social strain on social safety nets. Uh, I don't How do you solve all that stuff? I don't know. So here I can't speak as well as I speak about physics, but I can refer to Jane O'Sullivan who looks into. I mean, I can also refer to a lot of places that have on a national scale have deliberately chosen policies and not the one child policy, nothing coercive, non, yeah. <laughs> no forced sterilizations. Everyone jumps to that. But yeah. <laughs> um, the big example is Thailand with the sky match Vaidya, but also Costa Rica and places where it wasn't really intentional, but Italy and, and um, South Korea, we have this belief that if we don't grow the population, it will collapse or mm-hmm. that if we, the stuff that you talked about, about the demographics, that it, it doesn't work, but that it collapses the social, the social safety net, like, to grow retirement. these things takes a lot of, uh, I wish I could, if you want, I can send you uh, um, some links to this woman, Jane O'Sullivan, because it's sure. really, I also yeah. couldn't talk about population at all before learning that there are places that deliberately chose in nonviolent, non-coercive ways to go from like Thailand went in, I think the space of about 10 years from something like six or seven children per couple to replacement level. And, and how is that sustainable? economically because see as people industrialize that makes sense but if you're a farmer that you you're you're destroying yourself by doing that right because you need that labor the more labor you have the more productive you are and then if you're limiting yourself to like two kids instead of seven you're just going to be much more poor now imagine that all the land is taken and you can't grow into new land right growth is not helping in that in that situation Papua New, new guinea well and that's and that's and hunter gatherers too do that. I mean, they do. They have abortion, and even infanticide and stuff like that. They they take measures to control their populations on purpose. Yeah. This issue of if you can't grow into new space, but they don't have the, the social. It, they don't have a social safety net and a, a public health care and stuff like that to sustain. So I don't know how that works. I don't know if Thailand has those things either. Like <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. These are things I don't think about. To me, it's just it's possible, and therefore we can figure it out. Yeah, I think it's something to figure out. But it's when you want to sell it to people, you want to have sort of the answers to those questions. So that's comes up. That's those are my questions. So I want the answers to them. You know, another big answer is the alternative is yeah. If we're in overshoot and the alternative is collapse and it's half the population dies, nobody wants that. Yeah, yeah. But it's very easy not to look at that. Yeah. So there's there's more more element. There's more and more people really arguing against that and it's frustrating like you know you go and like i've been researching jordan peterson a lot because i'm doing an episode on him oh, and okay, uh, wait. It, it's called why why socialism would would solve all of jordan peterson's problems and i don't mean it's his personal problems but all the things he always complains about so many things that are so, really interesting problems that so many people worry about which he he's great because he talks about them he discusses the ins and outs of them but he never gets to 
any solutions for them, but it's really a lot of socialism would solve most of, of those problems. He's constantly getting on people now recently who, and it's not just him, it's all those kind of those podcasts and those hosts are, are getting on people saying, oh, well, you know, the climate crisis is just exaggerated. It's people being hysterical for nothing. There's, yeah, sure, climate is an issue, but it's not something we can't solve. And it's not such a big, this collapse and calamity, all that Greta Thunberg stuff is just silly. It's just hysterical. It's government's, I don't know, these nefarious left-wing powers using it to to control us by thinking there's a collapse coming. So you have to push back against that stuff too, because it's becoming very popular because everyone wants to believe that, right? Everyone is like, oh, how great. Oh, yeah, I don't have to worry about this that much. So that's a great that's very enticing. You know? Yeah, that's a lot of what my book is about and how we sleepwalked, sleepwalked into that situation and mm -hmm. how it's it's actually not benefiting ourselves, let alone even separate from the environment. That yeah. One of the reasons I, I, I feel like it's necessary to have the book is that I've already talked about slavery and reconstruction and, and abolition. That's mm. a difficult topic for a straight white man to get across mm. in the United States today. Another is addiction and how mm. much we are addicted to Loosely, I mean, just at the surface level, comfort and convenience mm. that comes when it comes from polluting and depleting the environment, that means someone's being hurt. Mm -hmm. And so if you believe that you're a good person and you're mm -hmm. doing something, you know, is hurting others, mm -hmm. you have a couple options. One is you can stop doing the thing. But if your culture makes that very difficult, yeah. then if you keep doing it, you can deny and suppress for only so long. At a certain point, you have to convince yourself why what you're doing is actually good. Yeah. Like we have to help the people over there. They're only making $2 a day. We have to help them. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting what it helps them. Favorite. What, what we, but if you've convinced yourself that the thing that's hurting them is actually helping them, you're going to do more of that. Yeah, for sure. What and I call stepping on the gas, the thinking it's the break, wanting congratulations. And getting, and getting a medal for it, giving yourself a medal for it. Look at all these jobs I gave to so these people who was, first of all, I destroyed their livelihood by putting NAFTA. <laughs> now I'm employing them all in my factory for half the uh, standard of living they had before. But yeah. And you got on the front page news because you, you, you got a good dividend for the shareholders. Yeah, I'm great. Every, win, win, win. <laughs> yeah. It keeps you from having to face your own internal conflict, mm -hmm. especially when everyone around you is doing the same thing. That's culture, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's what you describe as cu culture forms to make it easier to just keep doing what's, what's happening, even though even it's, if it's not what's system. the best yeah. thing. Yeah. So that's our situation is that we're, you know, in a sense, we're like living on skid row. And everyone around us is too. Here's a big part of our culture today. It's like everyone's saying to each other, look, I'm going to say what I do doesn't matter. Only governments and corporations can make a difference. That right. if I do, if I were to try, it would be such a, it would turn my life upside down, but it would, it would, divided by 8 billion is nothing to the rest of the world. So yeah. I won't do but, anything and we'll point our fingers at, over there and yeah. you do it too. And everyone's like, okay, we got it. Okay, let's all say what I do doesn't matter. Let's yeah. all say only governments and corporations can make a difference and a yeah. few other things. And let's all agree that the alternative to what we're doing now is the stone age. And we're all going to die. Yeah. <laughs> so when someone comes in and shows this is not possible, that this is it's what they say yeah. is impossible is possible. Yeah. Yeah. That rocks the whole boat. And so I have to really finesse how I do it. So I thought if I do videos, yeah. there'll be a limbo zone where I have presented half of what I have to say and, it'll turn everyone off because they haven't seen how it resolves. Oh, I, so that's I why know. there's a unitary measure of a book. I think there's definitely an audience for people like, Oh, there's a dude in New York city. He has no fridge. He's not plugged into the electrical grid and he's doing okay. And he's having a good time. So how I think people would definitely watch that. 
know. Well, there's a huge, I mean, the, by far the most common thing is, okay, so what kind of equipment are you using? But and it'll, missing... it'll reach more people than who will read a book. I think the book is good too, but that'll reach a, a lot of people like, oh, check this out, share, you know, you can, it's harder to share a book, you know, of course there'll be articles and interviews too, but yeah. Well, what I want to do is first write the book, then do that because right. I will get, I think. That's, that's, I, that's, yeah. I expect that it'll get a lot of attention, but if I don't have the full foundation there, then people will read it as what, like, oh, look at this quirky guy. Following along to see like, oh, where's this going? Like, how does this sustain itself? Oh, I'm skeptical. This is like nonsense. But then, you know, six episodes later, it's like, hey, look where, you know. My goal though is not for me to live sustainably. My goal is to lead is sustainability leadership. Right. So I'm working on like I'm forming. I'm actually about to finish the first mastermind group where I'm walking people through. At the beginning, it's kind of boot camp style to learn the Spodek method, which is how mm -hmm. to lead people on sustainability through intrinsic motivation rather than extrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. It's gone. I look at the the invitations I sent out before, and I was like, I don't know if this is going to work or not. So I, was, I, I didn't want to oversell it, and now. It's man, the, one of the participants, she's like, I can finally talk to my mom about this stuff because <laughs> people are so defensive, right? When you're suppressing yeah. and denying, then you just don't want to talk about this stuff. Yeah. And if someone talks about it, then suddenly this shame and guilt pops up and you, and you assign sure. it to the cause to the person who talked about it. Absolutely. You know, people are so full of shame and guilt that I couldn't possibly add any to, the, to them if I tried. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I really do. I do think that, I mean, I'm coming up on one year and mm -hmm. I want to be able, if I have just the first draft ready, yeah, I got to figure out what I'm, what, how, in what order to do things, but I definitely want to do videos in this, in your style. Build the audience first from videos and then there's more of an audience for the books. I, I don't know. Well, there's I a mean, period between, I, the first draft is almost Yorker. done. Yeah, like so, the New Yorker review, that's a big thing. I'm sure that primes an audience for that. I don't know. Well, I don't know if you read that article, but the guy's like super snarky. He, yeah. <laughs> yeah. the way I describe journalism in general about sustainability is it's like they're walking along and they see a child drowning. Yeah. And instead of putting being human first and saving the child, they write a story about the child drowning. <laughs> yeah. And then maybe that's... they notice that there's like some conveyor belt that's sending a whole lot of children into this pond and they're all drowning <laughs> and they don't do yeah. anything about the conveyor belt right that's not their job they just tell stories about how it works and how fast it's moving and the conveyor belt is feeding them money by giving them stories yeah also actually your stuff tied a whole lot of things together in that in recognizing answering graber's question of, of you know why are we stuck yeah, yeah. this i this thing of it so I, I did a, well, not by your scale, but it, for me, a deep dive into like, what is imperialism? What is colonialism? What is, yeah. how did these things lead to slavery? Yeah. Uh, when, not every kind behind, but generally. Mm -hmm. And that tied a lot of things together of where our polluting, depleting system came from. The way that slavery depended on access to the, 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 the resources it controlled were land, arable mm -hmm. land, weapons, yeah. and a justice system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when fossil fuels popped up, it fit perfectly into the existing system because mm -hmm. yeah. it was, it was slightly different land. It wasn't arable land. It was land with oil underneath it. Yeah. Coal, but everything fit. The system yeah. didn't change at all. Well, no, I, 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 every time I say like at all, everyone's like, well, what if this little change? Yeah, like, yeah. Basically yeah. 
and I got this quote from a friend of mine who's a professor at a, a, both a business school and a University of Michigan business school and the school for the environment. And he was speaking to an oil executive and the guy said to him, do you know what we did for energy before oil? Slaves. Mm -hmm. Slaves were a way of getting more labor, getting mm -hmm. more work out. Yeah. And oil just dramatically increased that. Yeah. They could for long, if you didn't know the how big the problems of pollution were, you could look at a machine reduced suffering, a machine replacing a human replace in, in doing physical work. It makes the suffering go away. It, and so for a long right. time, I think the fossil, yeah. the, the industry could say we are making the world better. Yeah. Now, yeah. now the science I'm, is overwhelming. For some, that, for some people. Yeah. Well, they, I mean, even if you said they could say it was making things better for overall, not quite everyone, but they could say that, all the people that were doing the work don't have to do the work anymore. And we're fixing that. And the more that we, we should keep doing more and more and more so that we can reduce more and more need yeah. to work. And we're and yeah. in their minds. They're saying we're moving, they're, we are moving farther and farther away from slavery. Right. But well, by now the number of people dying from pollution is greater than the number of people who are dying from slavery. So it's a bigger yeah. problem now. And yeah. it's small compared to what will be soon if we don't reverse course. Right. It's also, I mean, it's not exactly related, but, you know, uh, and Graeber actually talks about this in one of his articles that Keynes, the economist, was like, oh, well, in the future with all the... Oh, yeah, the, it'll be like 10 hours of work a week. Yeah, we're going to have 15 hours of work a week, which is which would have been the case if you had a socialized economy. But because the economy is geared for private owners to increase their profits, it's just the owner who makes all the benefits. So yeah. like if there's, a, if there's AI that completely gets rid of, you know, tax lawyers... And uh, who knows all these jobs? Well, that's great. No one has to be a tax lawyer anymore. They can just hang out and chill and everyone can work less. Well, no, that's not how it works because you have the owner of the AI gets all the profits and then everybody else just dies of starvation if you lose your, your job. So that's something that could be a wonderful boon to humanity. It just becomes an apocalypse because of the distribution of power. And that's what to look at. That's one of the things to look at. And people, same with the environment of people who are looking for technological solutions if they don't look at who's going to control the technology. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. If it's controllable, if so, then by whom? And yeah. I generally think of technology as it's not good or bad, right? Sharp knives and, and fire are not good or bad. Mm. They augment the values of the people using them. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you have to look at the va people's values and, and the cultural values, the, the, the values of the people and the, and the culture using them. But the values come from, a material basis. So the values we're talking about are a result of the economic system. The Because it's not just that we value the profits, it's just that our economic system is organized to make us value. Even if you don't value profit, you still have to go get that profit or else you can't live. You know, we have to participate in that. Well, that's why I think what we were talking about earlier about what happened the, the cotton gin arrived, even in a, um, yeah. a very democratic society with all that land to expand into, and that huge concentration of power, the material situation, I think would be, it would be very difficult to, I mean, we'd really have to work hard to make it stable yeah. and, and hold. Yeah. And so I see fusion or fission doing what we, what would happen if we, if we just implement it now, yeah. we're going to repeat what happened with the yeah. cotton gin. That makes sense. Yeah. If we did create a democratic global system that really worked, mm it would certainly test the stability of that system yeah. to have, you know, the, the cliche would be like power too cheap to meter. Yeah. But at the end of the day, people 
would, because there's consequences and the people who suffer the consequences would be part of the decision-making. You know, it's like saying, oh, well, the cotton gin came in so we can start planting cotton all over the place, but who gets to, who has to pick that cotton and whose land gets destroyed by that cotton, you know, the Native American people that get displaced. Well, in the global system I'm talking about, all those people would have a direct say in it. So they would just say, no, I'm not doing this. Yeah, for me, so what I'm working on and why I get so noted and people keep focusing on the, on the solar panels mm. is that I want to figure out, I want to make it, I believe that we have to stop growing. It's very rare. People don't like that idea right now, but it's based on ideas that are like you talking about your friend or family member who was like, I want socialized healthcare. And that's why I'm voting on the right. Right. <laughs> and you had to make your whole videos to like, that's, you're not, you're yeah. voting against your own interests. And I want to help yeah. you understand what your interests are. Have your interests, yeah. but make yeah. them grounded in, in what may, you know, in what makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And that's partly what I want to do, but also I want to show them. It's very clear what that, um, I mean, some things are very easy to, if, if you know how to look at it, which is like, um, can you make, I don't know, can you run a, a, a can you replace fossil fuels with, with um, used vegetable oil? Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. I mean, that's, that means it's a fraction of what food we eat. And that would, yeah. like, it's a tiny fraction of yeah. the energy that we would need. But there's a lot of people who are like, oh, there we go. Look, at all, the, look at all this, the fries in all the fast food yeah. places. That's all we need. <laughs> <laughs> like it's not even close. Yeah. Some stuff can work like that, but then there's other things that are like, people don't notice the resilience in my going off the grid resilience. We could decrease the, the power grid dramatically. We don't need peaker plants. We don't need nuclear backup and things like that. And the improvement to national security on that one is very high because you start losing all the single points of failures, places that right. could be targets. Most yeah. people think we need power for the military. That's how you get a strong defense, but also, you need I mean, less vulnerable zone, vulnerable points. It's also, yeah. but again, the, the, the sell there is you have to convince you're going against the economic system. The economic system doesn't want you off the grid. The economic system doesn't want you living in very uh, restricted means because that means economic collapse for all the, you know, stocks, stock markets, production, this, that, like it's that, getting at the fundamentals, which is good, right? Yeah, that's what I think about a lot. On a like one to, to sell this is you have to sell it against the uh, economic system. You're, at the same time, you have to propose a different economic system because that's a catastrophe for that. And that's, that's another thing. It's like, this is something that's great. If we could all live with minimal energy consumption and live with less junk and produce less junk and just be happier as people, and it's better for the, the, the world, like this is just great. But it's something that would cause economic calamity beyond the Great Depression, beyond anything. So there's that, <laughs> that's just a, a raging red flag about what's wrong with our economic yes. system. Part of my strategy is to make it appealing to everyone to realize that their own lives will be better. Mm -hmm. Now that wouldn't, that alone is not enough. There's also, I want to meet with, I believe I can, on the podcast, I bring in influential people who, you know, I've had people from um, McKinsey and McDonald's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, places like that. Yeah. And I what think- What they say? I have to check that out, yeah. I think that one-on-one, -on -one, here's what I imagine. I think that I can sit down at some point, I'll reach like the CEO of, you know, some super polluting company. Yeah. I think they want to be led to a place where like, like an, uh, to be not just, this is good for business because that won't get you there. Also they, something like an Oscar Schindler or like um, Robert Carter III, who in 1791 freed, began the process of freeing 500 slaves and his neighbors hated him. Right. Interesting. But he felt it was right. 
but but the one who gets to, to be the CEO of McDonald's or, or to work at McKinsey, you get to that place by sacrificing any yeah. value that you yeah. might have for profit. And that's why there's such a high percentage of psychopaths at the top of these, you know, industries. Yeah, so it's not, it's not going to be like one conversation. It's going to be have to and, a lot of, it's going to have to. I mean, that guy, you know, th- that guy and on a personal level. So there's a book I always tell people to read called uh, Disciplined Minds. It's about the uh, graduate school and includes like business school, whether it's physics or anthropology, whatever it is in graduate school, master's and PhD, that the law school, you know, the whole point of graduate school, because what you're doing is you're putting out people, you're, you're reproducing a layer of people in society who have a lot of autonomy and who are in positions, sometimes of positions of authority, like management, uh, you know, CEOs, like these important positions, lawyers. What you need to do is you need to break, sever the points in their minds where their morality is attached to what they're doing. You need to t- turn everybody into Adolf Eichmann, basically. You know, I know that it's terrible for the environment, but somebody's got to do it. If I wasn't doing it, someone else would do it. And I need to, you need to make them okay with, with doing bad things for a living or, or, or make them not being able to see it. So like if you're working in a, in a theoretical physics, chances are if you're making money, it's because you're working for the, the weapons industry. But you don't realize you're working for the weapons industry. You're just working on some minuscule problem, but that's going to be used for the weapons industry. So everyone can be lying to themselves all the time and, and whatever it is. And the people who get to the top of those industries, they're not the ones who are going to be implementing any of this stuff. And if they tell you they are, that's just, I wouldn't believe them for, for a second. They could be nice people. They could, you know, unless they're like the, the like that like Wendell Potter, like the guy who quit the healthcare industry and is now like a campaigner for universal healthcare. So like those people are human. Like, you know, he worked for a healthcare corporation for his whole life. And then all of a sudden something clicked. He, he, he realized certain things and then quit. If you're working there, if you're still working there, you're not like, if you don't get that guy to quit his job, then you didn't, you haven't reached him. You know what I mean? Because in that position, all you can do, your job is to maximize profits. You cannot, like when a corporation, like I, there, there's this, this Vivek Ramaswamy, like one of these Republican candidates, presidential candidates is talking about how all of these corporations, banks are pushing all these environmental policies and woke policies and this and that. And they're doing things that the government can't do because the government is too democratic and people won't stand for it. But the big companies can push all these environmental goals. And I'm laughing my head off because you know that these companies don't give a shit about the environment. They literally cannot give a shit about the environment. If the, the, the head of Wells Fargo decided to prioritize the environment over, you know, pirate, uh, Paris Climate Accords standards over profit, well, he would get fired and sued because he'd be there, he'd be harming the interests of his the shareholders. He'd be liable for damages that he'd be, you know, in a civil suit against his shareholders. It's just structurally impossible to do anything but window dressing. Like anything that McDonald's does to help sustainability is literally only what it would take to make their reputations look good so that they could keep making profit. Like it's just, there's no, unless you make it somehow profitable to do sustainability, that's something. If you could make it profitable to do sustainability, then you can get these people on board. But otherwise, maybe nice people, maybe great parents, maybe whatever, but they just are not, it's impossible, structurally impossible. So I don't, yeah, I'm very leery of all that. So you've very well described the playing field that as I saw it, as I see it. Yeah. And the alternative to entering the field is to watch things happen as they're happening. And mm. no one is, no one else is doing anything about changing that structure. 
the alternative to that structure is all, as far as I can mm -hmm. tell is, is a collapse of the human population and everything. So yeah. I've so decided I'm going like to, I'm going for it. Like I'm entering the field yeah. of play, the field of play that you just described yeah. I'm entering and I'm going to, what do you mean the field of play that I just described? What do you mean? You're okay. There's a, okay. There's a lot of companies that the people that there's these companies that are profiting and, and, and getting power from working the system yeah. that is uh, polluting and depleting and has put us into a, a state of overshoot that's maintained as with the, uh, things that pollute, but that pollution is yeah. getting so great that yeah. um, that's as bad as the collapse. And so we're going to have a collapse yeah. unless we change. Yeah. All right. Well, there's lots of people who want that change that don't have power. So, yeah. okay, we can get them to change. I think there's a case to be, I think I can get a lot of them to change because it'll make their lives better. Pe but ordinary people. That, yeah. yeah. People who are not in the boardrooms yeah. Or, yeah. Um, in the white house or whatever other halls of power. And that's really cool. Like, I think if you can show, like, look how I live. And also, you're probably saving a ton of money, too, in a bunch of ways. Like, I bet there's other benefits that people could see for themselves. But, yeah, that, that's a yeah, great. Actually, that's an example. Given the choice between if I have extra money, then I use it to free time. So, yeah, I have more economic financial independence, which yeah. I use to, to have more time. Yeah. Uh, and everyone gets that backward. Everyone thinks you must have time and money. Therefore you can do sustainability as if I was just sitting around staring at the wall. Most of the time, right. it, the cause and effect is the other way. Yeah. I was busy. And then as I act more sustainably, I have more time and money. Yeah. But that doesn't change, but changing all the people, let's say a whole lot of them change. Okay. But as you point out, the people who control the power and so forth, they got there, as you said, from a set of, from their perspective, acting on a set of values that made sense to them. Mm -hmm. And as far as they're concerned, what worked to get them there is more of that is what was needed, but that's going to, yeah. when the system is a problem, that's going to accelerate the system. Yeah. Well, I think you're talking about, you have to convince people, but there's something other than convincing. Convincing is different than leading. And I believe that people have enough intrinsic motivation to protect and conserve the environment and people that they can overcome the, on a, on, okay. On a single, on a, if you stick me in a room with, the CEO of pick your company, Monsanto or whatever. Yeah. Long enough. I think that person would say, you know what? You know what? You're right. That would be the beginning of then they have to work with the board and the lawyers and the media yeah. and, the, and everyone and the, and the then they get and everything. They would, would get be, fired. Right. If they, if they acted, if they acted blindly, they would get fired. But is it possible? So there are a few examples of, um, this is one place interface carpet where the CEO, he was the CEO founder. So he had a lot more control than the average uh -huh. place, but, let, let's see, is it impossible in the sense of, does it require going faster than, than speed of light? Will it violate conservation of energy? No. So it's not impossible at that, at that level. Is it possible? It, it, it is. Is it worth trying? Is it worth trying? Yes. The boardrooms, again, the, like here's an example. In the Amazon, there are horticulturalists who do slash and burn agriculture. They're indigenous people. They know that if they keep doing this, they're going to destroy their livelihood. They're destroying the Amazon forest. It's destroy. It's, you know, it's harming the world. They, they understand this and they all ultimately would be destroying their own ecosystem, but they don't have any alternatives. Like they have to keep doing it. So in, until you can give them a material reason not to keep doing slash and burn, they're going to do it, even though they, they know they're ultimately long-term committing suicide for them and their, their children for these CEO guys. Like at the end of the day, if you convince the head of Monsanto that what he's doing is, terrible and that he's destroying the world and it's bad for you know he, he has moral issues with it well he has two choices 
quit. That's his, he has one choice. No, he has two choices. Just keep doing it and like have cognitive dissonance or quit. Because if he doesn't quit, if he tries to change the company so that it, you know, it, it behaves in a more moral fashion, he will get fired. He will get sued. He will or get he removed. Use his... there's, there's no way he can't con- convince all these other people to like, it doesn't make any sense. There's no way that would happen. He, he's good. They're going to keep doing what they're doing. They have to be stopped by outside force. And what you need is the population as a whole, which, you know, the CEOs have disproportionate power, but it's, it's, it's like trying to convince the slave owners to stop slavery. Like, so how you know, do you explain that there were people who could have been slave owners who were abolitionists? Who could have been slave owners, but the actual slave owners, like, you know, and maybe there's one or two stories like this. I don't know. But was there any stories where there's a guy who owns a thousand slaves and is a super profitable cotton plantation owner, tobacco plantation owner, and he's a zillionaire? And then he realizes one day, God, this is so mean. What am I doing to these poor people? They're human beings. Yeah, like, Robert Carter III. It was 500 and just, slaves. And he abandoned all his slaves and all of his profits? Yep. One guy out of how many? Well, he's the one with the most. So I don't know how many others did it. You know, and, you know, and some people could do it here or there. And like we see, like Wendell Cotter, the Potter, the guy from the, forget which, where he worked, uh, one of the C, uh, healthcare providers. Yeah, he quit his top level position. And now he campaigns for public health care. But that's one guy out of a zillion people. But meanwhile, what you can do instead is convince the broad mass of the population that this sucks. And they're more likely to believe you because it's in their economic interest to believe you and get them to push to just make it illegal to do what those people are doing. And that's more likely like people. It's hard for you to see things that you're livelihood depends on you not seeing. That's a famous quote by somebody. <laughs> Look, I don't know if you can convince somebody. Great. But how is the guy, how is the CEO of Monsanto, if he changes his mind, what can he possibly do besides quit? First of all, these are not exclusive things. By no means does one preclude the other. So we can work on, and, and there's yeah. different interests of why the masses versus the elite would, they have different half matrices. Yeah. The, but how, but what, what could that guy, like, there's other, you know, you could convince the president maybe because the president isn't. You know, whatever, that would also be difficult. But that that makes more sense than convincing the CEO of something. Because once they stop believing that stuff or once they stop doing that stuff, they're fired. And right. So- we got to, at some point, we got to address this term convinced that you're using. Because I've, you'll see my stuff, CCCSC is infuriating to me. I cannot stand. So CCCSC stands for convincing, cajoling, coercing, and seeking compliance. <laughs> that's pure power. That's management. That not sounds leadership. like bullying. That sounds like bullying. Yeah. Yeah, that's one way of influencing people, but it's like the last resort of, it's but not the only way to lead is, people. You're, you're talking about convincing them in their hearts. Like, I get it. You're, you're, you're not talking about bullying them. You're talking about like literally making them have a moral epiphany, which, you know, it's like that guy who, uh, what's his face, Davis, who would go to a black guy who would go to all the Ku Klux Klan rallies and then make friends with them and get them to abandon their Ku Klux Klan beliefs and, and become anti-racist campaigners. That's that like that's what you're talking about, right? It sounds like it, but I can't say for sure. Okay, you don't know that guy, but anyways, so that's the difference between that guy and what you're talking about is that guy. Like, there's no, I mean, there is a little bit of a financial incentive to be a KKK wizard or KKK member, but not really. Like, you have an incentive because you have a community of, of fellow KKK brothers. You have this, you know, ideology that that makes you feel important, and you have a sense of history and thing. But that's something, but it's not as important as 
I make a million dollars a year or I make a hundred million dollars a year because I do all this evil stuff. And if I stop doing all this evil stuff, I will go to making $50,000 a year or, 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 or something like there's a huge difference. You're there's, stating the problem and I agree with obstacle, you. I agree that it's hard. Is much, much, more, much, much bigger. And once you convince the CEO of Monsanto or of Texaco that what they're doing is irreparably wrong, they can't do anything. They have to quit. Once they, in their heart, they believe, oh, Oil extraction is the worst thing possible. Look, I, I sorry to interrupt, but what, you, you got to quit. And how how can I how can I convey to you that I yeah. understand the problem? I understand so, so the then, challenge in front of me. Are you saying that I should not try? Are you saying are you saying yeah, this is absolutely impossible? I am, unless you can tell me it's not impossible. The guy can have the epiphany, like you can reach him. I think that is possible, but then he's going to quit and not accomplish anything. So, what's it going to accomplish to convince the CEO of Monsanto? that what he's doing is wrong and he's hurting all the farmers with their suicide seeds and all that stuff like that. What's that going to accomplish? Once you've convinced him, what's the next step? Because as I see it, the next step is the guy feels bad, quits, and that's it. And then another guy takes over and does the exact same thing he was doing. And maybe he becomes a Wendell Potter and is interesting and shows up on Democracy Now! and gives some interviews. That's useful. But right, it doesn't so change. Monsanto will still do the exact same thing they did the day before you convinced this guy. So that's, you're that's describing why I think it's a waste his... of energy. To me, that's not a good use of energy. So why do you tell me why it is a good use of energy? All right. And by the way, what's your time? I got to leave now, but like, I want to <laughs> hear this because this is really interesting. But then I got to leave. Um, yeah, my friend's going to be pissed off. <laughs> this is why I'm writing the book. So I can't just convey it in, in a minute or two. But I, I understand. there's but a few take, things take, that I can talk time, about. Take, take the time. Take the time because I, I definitely... Well, it's understand. also that it's like, it's not like I, I haven't yet polished it. So I can't just say off the bat. Right. But here's a, a, some top level things. First, there's a huge switch from extrinsic motivation to intrinsic motivation. Uh-huh. You're talking purely extrinsic, nothing intrinsic. Well, no, you, you changed the guy's heart. I'm saying you've changed the guy's heart. You've convinced him in his heart. He's I'm not a- convincing. All right. I'm going to keep – every time you, word, you say the word convince, I'm, it's yeah. like you're like I'm getting punched in the gut and I'm like stop doing it. Like, not punching well, What's the, gut, the better word? Like, I'm going to react to it. What's Please. the better word? So, okay, you- me, I know me. that within this person, this person has passions and motivation to protect the mm-hmm. environment that are inborn, that are in us. Sure. Mostly. And I think most I think most people have that. I think there are some there's exceptions. There's all kinds of people. Could but be, it I, could be exceptions. Let's assume, let's assume it's it's a normal human being who has that. Yeah. Yes. Most of them will say, I'd like to change the world, but uh all of what you just said. Yeah. You know, I gotta make the quarterly earnings and uh what I do doesn't matter and things like that. Yeah. But there may be a few who they will then use. Now, you're saying they're in a position of power and authority and they want to maintain that and, and, and augment that. But also there's another perspective, which is, yes, many of them got there just by riding the wave and they don't, fuck, they don't care about anything, but just whatever the system. They believe totally in the system. But there's, there are going to be some, some of them. Some people are psychopaths too, but yeah. But let's say it's not a psychopath. It's and a let's person just say that there's morals. even a small yeah. number of them who – like what I said before about the journalists who are writing stories about the kids dying instead of saving the children. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be someone who's like, you know what? I got to save the child. But it's not yeah. just running and getting a child out of, out of a lake. It's that person's going to have to sit there and think, what do I do? How do I make this happen? I, all the stuff that I would have to use, everything that got me here. I'm going to have to talk to the board. I'll have to talk to the lawyers. I'll have to talk to the mm-hmm. unions. But we can't talk to the unions before we talk to the lawyers. because, And they're going to have to uh-huh. figure out all the stuff. And they're going to take it upon themselves to figure out what you can't figure out right now. because you, And you're not – it may be very difficult. But there's going to be some who are like, I think I can make this work. Let's just pause it. It doesn't make sense because, okay, because a corporation exists 
the it's in the charter is to maximize profits like that's the function of that tool. subject to the law that, subject because they to don't the law. they don't they don't think to themselves like look at the godfather they they'll murder yes. their competition yes so no one thinks to themselves can i murder the competition but what if they realize what we're doing is killing people i'm not I, i'm saying i'm not trying yes. to say that's exactly the case but what if they realize what but i'm they, doing they is care. unconscionable but then they have to quit because if if they have an epiphany and decide to try to change the system that they're in, they're going to be kicked out of their job. It, I just don't. The, it depends the, on how they do it. Maybe they have the skills. What, what's what's the way? I don't understand it because the function of a corporation is to maximize profit. Okay, within the law, but there's also the thing is that the corporations also try to modify the laws so that they can maximize their profits, right? So they they actually make the laws. They literally write a lot of laws that people just pass. That's another thing. But let's you know within the law. So what you have to change is the law not the corporation because the corporation can, it's a machine that is programmed to do one thing, maximize profits. The only way you can change that is to change the law so that a corporation is no longer programmed to do that, which is a, a giant economic thing. But again, the way you change the law is change the law. You don't change the corporation within the corporation. There's nothing you can do. It's like, if you have a robot that's programmed to uproot trees, well, it's going to go and uproot trees and you can't do anything to that robot. You have to change the programming and the programming is something that you, it's the law, like you have to go like change I, the law. You can't, can't talk to the robot. You can't have a heart to heart with the robot. The, the robot, if one part of the robot decides, oh, uprooting trees is bad, that part of the robot gets ejected from the robot and replaced with another part that keeps uprooting trees. Because that's what the function of that robot is. I think I have to repeat back robot. to you everything that you said to me so that you get that I understand what you're saying. And then I that's the challenge. I think that they're going to yeah. be, I believe that they're going to be people who want to take that on and want to change that. But that's, and here, that's let, the, okay, that's look, 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 let, let's, let, let me not try to, hold on a second. Let me not yeah, try yeah. to win this argument. I'm not debating with you right now. I'm not trying to convince yeah. you that this is going to work. I'm telling you what, I'm telling you one piece of it so far. Let me okay. throw some other things in. Yeah. There's also plenty of role models. There's Robert Carter that I talked about. There's Oscar Schindler that I talked about. There's yeah. um, Muhammad Ali is another really big example. When he was drafted, yeah, I don't know if you know the story. I mean, he was heavyweight champion of the world. He was drafted, yeah. and this is uh, shortly after he was switching from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali. Uh, and yeah. he was convicted. He, they, they, they said, you know, cross the line to join the mm -hmm. army, and he wouldn't. And yeah. Jackie Robinson said, just do it. He wasn't going to get set to the front line. He had zero risk of mm -hmm. dying if he were drafted. Right? He, they would use him to sell war bonds and entertain the troops, USO, USO stuff, but mm -hmm. not – the risky thing for yeah. him was to not be drafted because they took away his boxing license. They took away his passport. Mm -hmm. They convicted him. They sentenced him to prison for five years. Yeah. And he had a, lawyer, a legal team. Um, so he didn't see jail time, but he couldn't fight in the prime of his career, like his late 20s, the best yeah. time of his career to fight. He, he didn't go yeah. completely broke, but he was going broke. Yeah. And ultimately, as it turned out, four years later, the Supreme Court overturned the conviction yeah. In a unanimous decision. Yeah. After him, Martin Luther King was against Vietnam for a while, but also had a cozy relationship with the Johnson administration. So he wasn't, except in small ways, wasn't speaking out against Vietnam. And then he did. He yeah. Yeah. He was actually, Muhammad Ali was influenced by Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. So there's all these little things that are like, you know, what trim tabs are no. on boats. No. Sometimes if you find a leverage point of a system, so a trim tab is, uh, you know, uh, picture a, a giant oil tanker. It's got a rudder in the back and the rudder, you turn it and like a day later, the thing, the boat starts turning. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 
actually on the back of the rudder is a little rudder. Mm -hmm. So if you want the boat to turn to the right or starboard, you have the, the, the rudder goes out to the, to that side. Okay. But to move the rudder, it's actually easier to have a little rudder on the back of that rudder. Okay. And that causes the rudder to move. <laughs> so trim tabs are, are these things that are, someone figures out a leverage point of a system where you make a small change and it can make a really big difference. It might take time and it may take some I effort. See. I see. Yeah. So in other cases, here's a couple other cases are. But all those people, they're making great sacrifices. They're making individual sacrifices, which I get. And it's against their economic interests, which I get. People can go against their economic interests. I, I definitely think that's true. It's obviously true. But that CEO who goes against his economic interests gets fired and the corporation. Yeah. Keeps so it's going. hard. Yeah. I think you're saying it's absolutely impossible to go up against that. And I agree that it's hard, but I, think I don't agree that it's impossible. I think there's I, going to be I a think few it's... people. Plus all the, consider that all the people in the organization, all the shareholders as well, also have this motivation in them as well. Yeah, but it's too, yeah. I don't, so I'll you give you hard. Convince, if you can convince all the shareholders. Not convince. Or whatever, or like, like transform or epiphanize all the shareholders to care about the environment more about, than about their money. It, but that seems like such a, not, it, I can't imagine it without drugs. How, why? Because they, they don't, they have an unpersonal, impersonal relationship to the shares. There's uh what do you call those, you know, investment companies, the, uh, hedge, hedge it, funds? it's like, yeah, hedge funds, you know, like that a lot of uh, retirement funds are all tied up in. That, that just, you know, it's a mixed portfolio of all these different things. They don't even know what's in, you know, they don't even know what they're investing in. You have to convince, and there's some oh, of like the biggest index fund or? institutional investors. Ah, oh, fuck, I don't, I don't remember. Maybe it's hedge funds. It, yeah, no, it's a different, something funds. Anyways, the, they don't even know what's in, they don't even know what they're, like, you know, people don't even know what their retirement is in. It's just in that. So you'd have to convince these giant funds. Not convince. Well, I, I don't know. The word convince has a different connotation for me than to you you know, get them to believe. Uh, well, the, the Vince in convince is vanquish. Okay. Yes. I, I get it. Yes. I see. That's interesting, but you'd have to transform all their beliefs on all this stuff. Ah, reveal beliefs that are already then. there. Unleash beliefs that are already there. Unleash the beliefs that are already there against their economic interests, against everything. It seems like such a few. Oh, keep in mind, energy. keep in mind if they don't First, all change changing the legislator, versus pushing the electorate and the legislator to just change the rules. That Keep make in mind that if they don't up. change, there's going to be a big collapse and they won't survive the collapse either. Yeah, but they have every motivation not to believe that. They're going to listen to Jordan Peterson, who's interviewing that you know, ex-Greenpeace guy who's telling us, don't worry about it. It's fine. It's Lombard. You know? Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Just this minor problem, minor problem. More and more of these guys, I hear them interviewed every day. They have every reason not to believe that i don't see you know and shareholders are a large mass of people why would you go after that large mass of people instead of the legislator you know the so let voters, me give you some more role models the voter the voters some other know. historical examples uh-huh another big one is the, when the new york can't was, do it yeah was going to ban the cigarettes in the workplace all the restaurants and bars said we're going to go out of business because people can just take the the train across the river to new jersey if yeah. they want to drink after work and they want to smoke when they drink yeah Two and a half years later, New Jersey had to ban cigarettes because people were going to Manhattan because no one knew what clean air was. Everyone wants in a smoke-free place, right? It makes you right. sick. But they, no one knew it until they experienced it. But like, again, that's legislation. It's not 
Okay, you're, but so I'm not you're, saying I'm not. Here's what so I can't tell you is that the, the exact is, same thing happened before in history. The analogy is that you can convince the companies to not convince. I don't know what the companies that it's going to be in their interest at one point to do it. Well, I'm like, sure, if you can, if you can I'm get gonna, a I'm going to connect with think, these people as human beings first. And the persons and the people who are the CEOs are going to say, how can I use this tool here as a human being first and a CEO second? And they, they, know, they, and they do have to follow their fiduciary duties. They, they, know they have to work within those constraints. They know they will get fired. The person who gets to that position. Unless everyone on the board, fired. unless everyone on the board who could fire them was also felt similarly. But how, the chances of that are so infinitesimal. You're multiplying the chances by each person that you have to, you know, get on board. That doesn't make any sense. Versus all the a mass of population whose economic interests are on the same side, who can affect the voters, who can lobby the legislators. The, who wait, their 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 beliefs the are their economic interests, but their actual economic interests, Both. given that we're in a state of overshoot, are their actual economic interests are to keep civilization intact. But of the CEOs, but their economic interest is to believe that none of this is happening and none of this is real, and they got to keep doing what they're doing because they can always just pick a, a fake news uh, source to, to believe in. Yeah, so that that veil has to be pierced, or that uh, that, yeah. that that I don't know, man. It just seems so. I, look, you got to do what you got to do. If you really feel strongly that you can be productive in that way, I just don't see it. I don't see any. I don't see that going anywhere. Like I don't see. You know, I, I see it, it's a, I see, you know, you can meet with people. They might like to talk to you. They might enjoy talking to you. They might, it might stimulate their minds, but at the, they're not going to do anything about it. They're just not, they might do some greenwashing uh, initiative that they might like, they might get you on board for it. They might pay you something for it. You know what I mean? Like they might, you know, and they might think that they're doing something. I, I see a lot of these corporate centrist and, and right-winger types really believe like Jordan Peterson really thinks that, oh, you know, there's people up in these industries, they really care about the environment. And they're trying, you know, I spoke to the CEO of Texaco and he really cares about the environment and he's really trying his best, but you know, there's all these problems. And he interviews people who work for these companies. They're, they're not going to do anything. There's no way that they're doing anything about it. They can't. It's just, it's, in, it's physically impossible. I, I don't, I think it's literally impossible. Well, I would bet you on it, but it would just be taking your money. <laughs> I'm not saying it's quick. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's a slam dunk. Yeah. I'm not saying anyone has done exactly it before. Hmm. I am saying that it's necessary or there will be a civilizational collapse. Like I think that getting the population on board and pushing the legislator or whatever, that's really hard. And that's, but that's possible. That's doable, but it's hard. But what's going to be part of it. That's part of I it. I think it's impossible what you're saying. I literally think it's not possible, but I don't think it's just hard. I think it's not possible. But hey, what do I know? Go for it. Let's see. Let's. I want to see. Let's show me the results, and then I'll be wrong. You know. Yeah. Well, I win either way, or rather, I can't lose because if if uh, if it works out, then I get your money, and if it doesn't work yeah. out, I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> then I get the money. <laughs> I mean, that's why I work on leadership. Is that leadership is about how to help people do things that they want to do, but haven't figured out how. And yeah. look at before the leverage buyout. Uh -huh. People can talk about that as a technology. So some company, some little company looks at this big company uh -huh. and says, I'm going to take over the big company. And they, every now and then it, I mean, it happens. 
mm-hmm. that this, the little company has to get lots of resources in terms of other investors, but it says right. I can run this yeah. company better than that company, even yeah. though I'm tiny and they're big, we're still yeah. going to take them over. Yeah. Now it happens all the time, but imagine the yeah. first person saying that. Sure. But again, there's possible and there's impossible. <laughs> I don't know. I just don't, I, I, I don't see it. I don't see that literally impossible. Like it's not the difference between hard. It's impossible. Like convincing the population and it, like what I'm trying to do is hard, like change the common sense of the average person. I think that's hard, but I think that's possible. But getting the CEOs of America to transform society in a way that's against profit is not possible. That's not. Do you think I can do it with one? No, they'll have to be quit or be fired. That's all. Yeah, you can. I think you can convince one. Yes, you can't. Just like that slave owner you said who'd like released all their slaves Mm -hmm. and maybe became poor afterwards. I don't know. Yes, it is definitely possible, but it won't have any effect on anything because they will just quit and be replaced by somebody else. And they might become a campaigner. That's interesting. Like that Wendell Potter guy is cool. It's an interesting story to see a CEO quit and go campaign against the healthcare industry for free healthcare. But he didn't. But there's another guy who just replaced him and that, that company is doing the exact same thing. That's that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, that guy might be. That's a win on the chessboard. You know, that guy's worth 10,000 regular people because he has a big voice, mm-hmm. but he's not going to change the company. He's not going to do anything differently at the company besides window dressing. He's. You know, if he does anything, if he does any initiatives in the company, it's all window dressing. I don't believe it for a second. Otherwise, he's quitting and he's becoming a Wendell Potter, which is cool. That's good. That's a victory. That's something. But it's not changing the company. The company's not going to do shit. Never. Never, ever, ever. Unless the law. So after everyone, this is also exactly what people said about Britain ending the slave trade, which it did in 1807, I believe. Mm -hmm. And everyone said, well, if we don't, other countries will. They'll just pick up the slack. Mm-hmm. But after Britain did, then Spain, Portugal, France, Sweden, Netherlands, they also banned the slave trade in the United States as well. Why? I don't know the history of it, though. So there's lots of reasons. Part of it is that Britain had this big navy and they couldn't force it. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there you go. So like but, if you had... You but they can't enforce other countries' laws, but also... Yeah. If you could convince one company that if we ban child labor or something, or if we stop, I don't know what, doing something bad then somehow we could use our muscle to stop all the other companies from doing it. And then we have an economic advantage. Yes, that will work because again, the only thing that will work is if you can convince that company, that CEO, that it's in their economic interest to do something because that's all a company is an economic self-interest machine. So if you can do that, that works. And if you can figure out a way to, to get companies to do those things by that way, then yeah, go for it. That's great. It's not, I think you're playing too black and white. If I, if I could show a company that it's in their economic interests to murder their competition, yeah, Physically. and they could get away with it. And you know, here's a way you can get away with it. No one will know it was you, yeah. and you'll totally win. They will not do it. A hundred percent, they'll do it. You. <laughs> All right. Because okay, let me tell you how that works. Okay, and then I, I guess I got to go. Okay. So let let's say. That it becomes known within the circle of the, you know, the top execs that, oh, if we literally just murder our competition, then we're going to double our profits and take over their business. You might have at first, they're going to be like, oh, that's not a good idea. No, I don't want to do that. Ooh, that's, but let's forget about that. Right. And that might go on for like a while, but eventually you're going to get a psychopath in there and like, it's going to happen eventually because it's 
the purpose of the company is to do that. It might not happen right away. It's like um, well, Michael, Malcolm Gladwell is talking about why do Jewish people, why are a lot of the top law firms run by Jewish people, right? I'm Jewish, so I'm not going to say a bunch of anti-Semitic crap here. Um, so the idea is in the, um, I think it's the 1920s when it was co- uh, hostile takeovers. It's a bit like what you're talking about. Hostile takeovers w- became legal or became somebody thought of it, right? All the top CEOs were members of the old boys club of the Ivy League universities, part of the same skull, skull and bones, uh, you know, societies. So the idea of one of them just pillaging the other's domain would, was socially unacceptable. So they didn't do it. None of them would do it. And none of the top law firms who went to school with all those people would do those transactions. Well, guess what? You had a group of excluded lawyers, Jewish lawyers who weren't allowed to be part in those universities. They weren't allowed to be part of those fancy law firms. There were small guys like me, for example, except, you know, that's not the law that I do. And they're like, well, okay, I'll do your hostile takeover. And then it was done. So there's, you know, there's always a way for it to get done. And then they, they're the ones who did it. And then they made all the money. So there's a cultural barrier to, to murdering your competition, right? But once it becomes known, once it once you know everyone in the industry realizes, oh, if we do this, this is going to happen. The shareholders will elect the guy who's going to do it. You know, the guy who's going to do that job will push out the guy who's not doing that job, and that's what's going to happen over time. It's like an evolutionary process. Uh, the company who will do that will, and the execs who will do that will get those positions and push out the ones who don't because they're going to make the most profit for the, the shareholders and then they'll do it and then it'll become the norm and all the, the companies will start murdering each other unless the law comes in some, you know, but you know, in your, in your premises, like they don't know about it. No one, no one will find out you'll get away with it. And, and, and they do literally murder people all the time. There's tons of murder. Some of these horrible pollution projects, uh, what's, you know, with Amazon, they go, you know, completely destroy an ecosystem and three generations of people are with birth defects and they know what they're doing. The c- cigarette industry knew what they were doing. The, you know, a lot of the fossil fuels so that they knew what they're doing. So they are killing people and they literally, like, you know, your, your scenario is true. It's real. They know that they're murdering people. I don't see why that would change. Why wouldn't they just murder their colleagues you know it's a little bit more difficult because it's easier to murder indigenous people far away or, or just regular people who smoke cigarettes versus the other ceo that you know but it's not that much of a stretch you know so yeah <laughs> yeah i think we'll have to leave it at uh i'm curious what would be the minimum thing result that i could achieve that you would say oh that's i didn't think that was possible if that's possible more is possible i, I don't know yeah like i'd love to see a meaningful result that decreases the profit of a company because it would have for it to count right it has to decrease the profits of the company that's what i don't believe i I don't believe you could make a publicly traded so if you get a private company right like Mm -hmm. if i'm the sole owner of whatever you know somehow i'm a giant oil corporation but it's me that owns all the shares you can convince me to do all kinds of stuff and i could do it that would work right but a publicly traded corporation that's different that's a machine that can't have any morals or anything so if you could show me that you've convinced someone who is a CEO of a publicly traded corporation to do something that helps the environment, but harms their own bottom line. And we have to keep in mind, they, they have a certain percentage of their income that they use to do PR, you know, so it's not harming their profits because it's calculated that, well, this, you know, we're going to spend $2 million on this, but it's going to bring us this much, uh, save us this much in other costs. So yeah, if you could, yeah, I don't know. You know, there are people who, there are soldiers who go into the line of fire to save, to pull out a wounded body to safety. Right. 
yes, humans sacrifice themselves all the time for other people. I think an organization is, I mean, we, we, all right, we, we both said it enough times that we, we both yeah. hear each other. The, 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 the question is in the doing. Himself. The CEO can become Wendell Potter and sacrifice himself, but the organization can't. Wait, wait hold on. Pulling the body to safety is not sacrificing themselves. They're pulling the body to safety. Oh, oh. well, they might they're not, sacrifice. They're not, they might, okay, there are people who die. throw themselves on a grenade, yeah. but there are also people who do something that's risky and, and survive. Yeah, and some of them die, but they're, they're risking their lives. They know that they might die doing this to help somebody else. And people, yeah. But I'm seeing a worst case is the person doesn't survive. So like, you know, Wendell Potter got ejected from his industry because he dissented from just making profit. Um, right, so my read is that is that you see the situation as absolutely impossible because the economic self-interests are so great. And it's not the self-interest. Among so many people. It's the structure of the the machine itself is only capable of doing one thing. And the only way to change what that machine does is at the legislative level. You cannot change what the machine, the corporate machine does inside of the corporation itself. The people who run the corporation don't, they don't have enough agency or ability to do anything meaningful unless it's a privately owned corporation. Then right, you can to, to what extent are you saying it's exclusive that I can only work on executives and I can't also work on the people at the same time? Because I'm imagining there's also pressure coming in from legislation because of popular support. I'm just saying that the executives will have no, there's no point. There's no point to do it at all. It, unless you're trying to turn somebody into a Wendell Potter who is going to quit his job and then campaign on your side and become a really interesting story that will get a lot of coverage. That's useful. That, that you can do but it's literally impossible to change what a corporation does from profit to some other beneficial reason unless you change the legislation. It's well, like B Corps in- also. Oh, that's different. That's a B Corp. You, but then you have to legislate that all these corporations become B Corps. That's different. Wait, they, they do that, but there are companies that have already become B Corps on their own. But you'd have to get all the shareholders to make it into a B Corp. The CEO can't just make it into a B Corp. I'm not saying only the shareholders. I mean, I'm not saying only the CEO. So if you're going to you con- keep say, you keep imposing on me all these constraints that aren't there. Oh, like, well, I don't that, know. That you you will not allow that they can see the scientific results. They can see, but then they can't be part of the corporation anymore. All, every person in the corporation can see. So you you think you can go convince all the shareholders? Uh, not convince you can. Yeah. I don't know what. Power, you know, all, all the, the people in, in the shareholders, the CEOs, execs to transform themselves into a B corporation. Oh, shit. That's my phone. I'm going to have to go. You're going to have to transform them into a B corporation. I'm just but, saying this. I'm, I'm pointing out a B corporation is something that happened that wasn't legislation that they voluntarily do course. it. But a B corporation is a legal entity. It's a legal form. So there's legislation involved. The B corporation is not just a voluntary charter. It's a legal form. You keep hearing more than I'm saying. I'm not saying because there's a B Corp, it's a done deal. I'm, I'm saying that that was pointing out that companies can change. You're saying they, they, they will not act outside of their economic interest or the, the structure is there, but the structure can be changed from, can change from the inside. No, it can't. The structure of a company? Yeah. There are for-profit companies, publicly traded companies that became B, that became B Corps. Well, I really want to know about how or why that happened yeah there was one danone that- usa i believe is publicly traded and i had on the yogurt the yogurt company uh i mean it's bigger than that but yeah okay and what do they and what does i don't know enough about a b corporation a b corporation is something that has some other motive in its charter than profit 
Yes. So why and how did that happen? Were they about to go bankrupt and that saved their ass? Like what was the... What, Actually, what? I had on my podcast a woman who, uh, Lorna Davis, who is, I believe, the main person behind that transformation. Okay. Okay, I'll have to listen to that. I want to know why that happened or how that happened. Yeah, I mean, definitely listen to that. Because the shareholders would not tolerate that unless it was to their benefit somehow. Let's see, Danone... So I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. I, I shouldn't look up while I'm talking. <laughs> yeah, but, I, um, and I got to go to that. I have to. There's a lot of things that can come into play. This is why I have to write the book. Is if I if I try yeah. to t- describe this stuff in in podcasts, if I really go into the detail about this stuff, either it's like one super long podcast that would take as much effort yeah. to do as the book. So it's the same thing. I would I, like. Eventually, I'm just going to read the book. I'll have the the audio book. <laughs> But if I don't, if I just go one by one, you're illustrating what I'm talking about. Is that if I go one by one, people are like, nope, 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 nope. But that's a statement of their imagination, not. Well, yeah. If you could outline the situation, it to me, if you can outline it in one place, yeah, sure. Like, send me that to know the that episode. I want to see. I want to look right. at that. All right. So we're we're mid conversation, and I know that a bunch <laughs> of your listeners are going to be like, actually, I don't know how they'll respond. But this is exactly the. I mean, look, as I said. I think there's a huge lack of practice on rhetoric on my part, not rhetoric, but like how to communicate what I'm doing. Well, you got to have the questions in right? a short period of time, whether you're writing a book or whatever, those answers have to be there somewhere, whether it's long format or, or quick elevator pitch answers, you got to have those answers. Yeah. Well, I'm not Where? there yet. That's why I'm, that's still first draft of the book. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I'm, I'm really enjoying right. this. I hope, I, hope, I hope to get you back for a third. Yes. Yes. Anything Weirdo. to close on? Uh, I don't know. We close on a grim note of uh, murdering. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know. <laughs> Can't think of it at the moment. But All right, well, you got something? Yeah. No, I'll just close with everyone, everyone. I said it before and I'll say it again to watch What is Politics? As people can tell by my having been on the inside of the Patreon means that I've donated. So I recommend people donate as well because as you mentioned and they'll hear in the podcasts is it's a full-time job for you. And you have a full-time job. So, well, I'm a lawyer, I'm a lawyer part-time actually, but yeah, I'm losing my mind. Like there's so much stuff that I'm doing at the same time that it's, uh, yeah. Well, the the loss in your mind is. I make minimum wage basically as a lawyer at this point by, uh, in terms of annual salary, because I'm spending so much time on the podcast and actually I became, that's a whole other story, but I became a lawyer on purpose so that I could work part-time. Uh, to support myself while I'm doing all these other projects and which right now is the podcast. But yeah, but that's a whole other story. Well, whatever's mucking up your mind, you're, you're unmucking enough other minds. I hope so. Yes. Good. Okay. It's good to talk to you. Great to talk talk to you you and looking forward to next time. Yes. Cool.